Good evening and welcome to Knox Monday. Tonight's guest is Niles Heckman. Niles is the director of the feature film Transmutation and the co-creator of the documentary series Shamans of the Global Village. He is founder of Aurora Lab. His work in visual effects can be seen in blockbusters like Avatar, Pirates of the Caribbean, Fantastic Four, Blade Trinity, Matrix Reloaded, Matrix Revolutions, Terminator 3, and The Incredible Hulk. There's a period in <laughs> He has a passion for street photography, and welcome to the show, Niles. Those are... are just dreadful and you have no control over the things that you're affiliated with so the the two projects that you started off with are kind of my own passion creations and i, I have to say i'm probably more proud of those independently made things than these giant monster projects so that's a whole nother story but you kind of get the gist of that i'm with you though i like the independent stuff always those are all good movies well but those yeah. are those are good movies i mean they have they have their benefit they're not shit movies put it that way <laughs> some of them are some of them are pretty decent but like um it's just real. Yeah, it's nice to do things bottom up rather than top down, almost in any area I've always found. And so um, you get so much reward out of just the, the kind of doing things that are have more creative pursuits that kind of align with your own inner life and your own inner cosmology and aren't something that you have no control over, even though working in teams is excellent and, and accomplishing things with other people in groups can be nice as well. So it's not like you don't do that independently, but when things get so big, they get weird on almost every front. Oh, yeah. absolutely. But look you at, did, look at the government. Part of some iconic films, you know, seriously, in the collective. We won't talk. Yeah. About it. We won't talk. No, it's not about <laughs> that. But, but at least it's not like, say, Chucky, you know, it's right. Matrix and, and the Terminator and stuff like that. These are icons. And, and, and there are whole woo woo movements around them. The Toxic Avenger tonight. Right, human centipede or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, yes. no affiliation with. I, I, there's a couple. There's a couple things that are absolutely dreadful that I have been affiliated with, and there's some things that are so embarrassing I would never even put them on the quote unquote resume or the LinkedIn profile if I still kind of you know gave a shit about really promoting myself just from yeah. purely a career standpoint. <laughs> even though it's nice to have you know your professional pursuits and then some mixture of things that are your hobbies and how how do you kind of balance those things. I mean, all of us always, you know, that's a, a common theme of things I talk about oftentimes. It's like, what's your outer life, your kind of professional resume life, and then what's your real life, your, your yes. truthful life over your kind of false life. It's like an esoteric yes. and exoteric version of yourself. And you, yeah, even, absolutely. you even have each side of that in your hobbies too. You have exoteric hobbies, you know, what you tell people you're into and then what like you're really into. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I kind of do primarily two things. I mean, I do somewhat a little bit of life consultation and then life documentation these days. So I'd say that maybe 10% of that is just, you know, essentially consulting with others directly on their own development or what you might call self-actualization. That's kind of like 70s life spring jargon or spiritual growth, et cetera. And, you know, it's not like I'm really a life coach because so many life coaches, I think their lives are a mess and I can count the amount of decent life coaches I've met on basically one hand. Mm. Oh, but yeah. every, ever so often I, I do work in these one-on-one -on -one dynamics, helping others to essentially come to me or just want to inquire with me about something that I've said or put out there that resonates with them and have essentially ears to hear. And that, you know, very much in turn helps me as well. But then very much a larger percentage of what I do these days is this kind of like life documentation, which is a 
essentially a documentary photographer and filmmaker with the main two projects of which you, you mentioned, Jerry, but you know, those are essentially outer manis- outer manifestations of reflections that I find going on within me as, as doing some, as essentially being, maybe you could say an occultist and an esotericist and student of the mystery, which I kind of modify a little bit into a student of life. You totally so, just robbed my question out of my head. I was, I was actually <laughs> yeah. going to ask if you found that a majority of your clients echo some, some deficit or area you need to work on within yourself. Sure, they do. And, you know, you see commonalities with people that, that speak to you. And I oftentimes, the theme I really do see is people who are essentially myself five or 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there are certain things along the way that if I, had, if I had found something 20 years ago, I would have gotten moving a lot sooner than I did. I'm actually 39 right now. And I think I really only started getting moving in my 30s. And it wasn't like I was a teenager in my 20s. In my more stupid past, I was making just a lot of money in my 20s working on those giant you know, steaming turd movies that you spoke about, but I, it, it took me a complete like gradation of rebooting my life in many ways. Like so many people do that are on somewhat of a internal life growth path of really changing yourself and then going through kind of going out into that boat into open water and not quite knowing where land's going to be the next time. And you have to do a lot of rebooting and it's kind of scary. And, you know, people see that you've done something however smaller or far in that dynamic and they they are like oh that resonates with me because we all should essentially be doing that right as we're escaping these kind of robotic lives of of dreadful uh, soul crushing you know drudgery right mm-hmm. so oh, yes yeah so so i do find that and i i it's funny i i had a, a young bloke that i was speaking to re- recently who i told to read cosmic Tr- trigger robert anton wilson's oh, yeah. book which mm-hmm. i had only discovered a few years ago and it's like everything in that book just pulled on the heartstrings of things that I had discovered in my 30s. And I told this 19-year-old kid to absolutely read Cosmic Trigger because it was me essentially talking to myself when I was 19 saying, read Cosmic Trigger. <laughs> so that works. That's in that regard, I do find that. I definitely find that. And, you know, it's, it's actually funny too, at the time of this recording, I should tell you guys, it's a bit ironic because uh, I have a daughter who is 16 months old. And uh, as our paths are crossing at this kind of time-space vector, and so thus I have the most tumultuous relationship of my life with my sleep schedule. <laughs> oh yes, I bet. <laughs> yeah. So getting to full REM in the last basically year and a half has been extremely challenging. And I find that conventional dreams and our, our nightlife and what you guys so much focus on in these discussions of this program, so much of that really does require you to get a certain amount of sleep before you really dive deeper. I find that by hour six, nothing's really happening. And it almost takes for me at least to get to hour eight, which is kind of a luxury, right? Mm. to yes. even start to maybe get to what, what you might call REM sleep or, and then if you're lucky enough to get some, you know, college stoner level of sleep, 10 hours, 12 hours, it's like, that's where I really find things happening. So I could probably say that two times in the last year and a half, I've had natural, amazingly deep dreams just because of that current dynamic in my life. Well, we're also interested in, so not just in, um, the quality of dreams you're having currently, but the ones you've had in the past, but more importantly, the, uh, I guess, the philosophy of where you think everything is, where the, where's the crossover between memory and dreams and, and consciousness of now, the consciousness of future and death. That's Mm -hmm. the whole, and that's the whole of the show. It's not like right now. Right. Right. We'll get into that. So let's, with that, let's just start. Sure. That is so me. I'm so so like, right turn. I know. But I'm, you know, I'm like, right turn, here we go. Yeah. Um, 
give us some insight into your earliest uh, memories of you in this lifetime and the things that the things that stick out to you now from back then. Yeah, it's funny because very distant memories when you were re really young are kind of like dreams, aren't they? Because they're very kind of faded and you might say fragmented and they just kind of, you're suddenly in them. You don't remember getting to them. It's just like you've just transited to that portal and you're suddenly beamed. You, it's like you've beamed down from the enterprise into this experience and it's like you've suddenly materialized there, right? Yep. So it, it's interesting in the past, I've had kind of a, a sporadic and weird dream life, but I do have a very vivid first memory of being out on my parents' deck in the backyard and there was this red bench that they used to have that I used to sit on. And so I think, I don't know how old I was, but I was probably uh, three or four years old and I still remember this red bench. And it's very much, you can remember a, a very short period of the experience. It's not like you remember hours of the day or the whole day or half the day. You kind of remember these chunks of very kind of specific things that occurred and happened at that time. Right. So I remember sitting on this red bench with like a, a yellow raincoat or something. And it was kind of a foggy day. And then I've, it's interesting because many times in my life, just with conven conventional dreamings, especially when I was younger, I had these kind of strange vectors coming in where one part of my life was then suddenly, you know, seemingly completely unrelated to another part of my life converging in the dream. Right. So it's like somebody that I grew up with or went to school with in elementary school is suddenly in a rowboat with somebody that I worked with five years ago. Right. And then that, that experience is kind of cross correlating. Those two people are doing something. And then I'm there watching them in that experience. And it's like, why would these two people have anything to do with each other, yet alone in the context of what's happening in the dream, in the dream space? So that's something that's definitely a reoccurring theme that I've always had. And it, every once in a while, when you have a dream that's really like a wonderful, yummy dream that feels like you're living in Revendell or something from Lord of the Rings, and it's very, it's very beautiful and ethereal and kind of cosmic and, and just you want to live in the dream. Those things are more rare. I, I have found that most of my dreams are just weird. It's just like funhouse mirror weird. <laughs> and as we know, I mean, our dreams are always, you could, you could say a big part of our dreams is our subconscious telling us things and how so much of our, what you might call our higher selves or our larger selves or what some magical orders might call like our holy guardian angel or whatever, maybe what Jung called individualization, these connections to something larger that maybe we can be a channel for. I think part of that is communicating with us through, through synchronicity and symbolism in the day and then our dreams at night, right? Mm -hmm. So, and you really have to develop self before you can really start to piecemeal some of that material and kind of decipher it and, and, and decode it. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So did you have, uh, I, you know, this, the red bench image is really significant. It's just to me, it's significant. I love that image. I just want to state that, but did you have any kind of a relationship with nature as a young child? Yeah, I did. I, I grew up on a street that was right at the end. It was a street that's very wide because it was designed to be like the entrance of a much larger community that was subsequently never built. So at the end of the street is this giant open space that's like insane amount of acreage in the Bay Area. And um, it's, it basically opens up to this huge, huge park. And so I used to go up there all the time. And it's not like it's very... Um, lush and heavily wooded. I know that Nisha, you're up in the Pacific Northwest. It's not yeah. like you, you escape into the forest, which is very yeah. much kind of, you know, in fantasy, oftentimes like a metaphor for going into self. Same with like yes. going into the cave is a metaphor for going into self, like the wizard escaping into the forest. But this was very kind of like dry. It's Mediterranean landscape, right? Like the famous California fire landscape where you have these kind of high grasses that are very dry. And then 
scattered oak trees, but there was still plenty of interesting things to do up there. So we'd always go up there as kids. And this was, of course, pre-anti-social media where everybody's just devolving into like tech neck behind screens where we actually got outside almost every day and interacted <laughs> in real life. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so we were outside and I would ride my bike up there and I had a lot of buddies that we'd go up there with and we'd just go exploring. And so we'd be gone for half the day at a time, right? And it, it was very much like our versions of just getting away from not only this, this just the, I don't want to say the pressures of growing up, but you know, it was kind of like our escape into our own world very much as in adolescence. It's nice that you had that, especially in the Bay Area, because you know, like it's just, yeah, it's, it's so crowded. It's um, a clusterfuck of cloggery. And it's like any major urban area these days where I, I think about New Yorkers, if they didn't have Central Park, they'd just go bonkers. Oh my God, it would be a prison. I mean, seriously, Central Park is such a gift. What great planning. Totally. Uh, um, okay, so, and also back here, the young, young Niles, what kind of things in pop culture inspired you? Like cartoons or early movies, that kind, even action figures? Yeah, you know, I did, I was a lot more materialistic as a kid. So I had all this, just like this staggering amount of comic books on the walls and like action figures and things, some of which I have to confess that I had to pay nerd tax and I didn't even take a lot of them out of the packaging. So I like subsequently <laughs> yes. hang my action figures on the wall of my comic books and just stare at them and collect them because they're so, I have this kind of Japanese <laughs> thing within me where I, I appreciate like fine ornate packaging and nicely presented things. So sometimes when you buy something, it's packaged so beautifully that I didn't even take it out because action figures are either going to sit on the shelf and collect dust or else you can leave them in the packaging. That was my philosophy. I so, feel super. you, Miles. I used I to buy you. vintage uh, game books from the Black Library of Game Workshop, Games Workshop. I, nice. I probably had thousands of dollars in books from them. Same kind nice. of thing. Same kind of thing. Yeah, the, the kind of magic in my background was I loved adventure games, like early computer adventure games. I was so nostalgic of that. Like there are these games called King's Quest and uh, Quest for Glory. I don't know if you guys know those games. And they were these old, like very early era kind of EGA was the resolution of the, was the pixel kind of resolution of the games. And they're very blocky. It's kind of what Minecraft is based off of. Those old kind of indie game looking games. And those were very much like fantasy and adventure. So I was super influenced by those. And then I was never really like a in terms of cinema, I was never really like a Star Wars kid. I was much more influenced by these kind of like dark, gothic, kind of occult looking things like Aliens. You know, like the Aliens trilogy really influenced me, the kind of gore and the dark sci-fi of those things, even though I was never... I mean, every once in a while today, I'll watch like a trashy horror movie by myself, but I'm, it's not like I'm a completely obsessed with occult horror or something like that. How about but, Spawn? You got to be a Spawn. Yeah, yeah. You know, I did like... Not so much like the spandex tight comic book characters, but more right, the graphic right. novel, like the Alan Moore type dynamic oh, stuff yeah, really yeah. was an influence. Yeah, for sure. Totally. Do you have, so in this, in this kind of young you period, did anything stick out dream-wise? You know, I don't have anything that I think is like a seminal dream that just reoccurs that I remember very vividly. Nothing sticks out over everything else, but... Mm -hmm. I have had themes like kind of the main one that I mentioned that has been consistently reoccurring. And I do find that as you change things in your inner life, like your dreamscape changes. And I, yes. I do find that if, as we ultimately look to like the highest version of ourselves, like what you might call like the source of all things, you can almost call it like the dream source, right? So mm -hmm. I think that as we communicate to like, as we get transmissions, if we get developed enough or we're lucky enough to read into our ourselves, I find that that 
that signal does change as you change, right? So whatever is happening in dreams or happening in that, I, th I think it's kind of all a reflection of the, the dream space is similar to your memory space, which is similar to your kind of astral experiences or your, your out of my, what you might call your out-of-body experiences or your connection to higher self experiences. I, fi I find those things to be also similar because I think that it's such a, it, it, it very much resonates with me. And I heard this funny term recently that was something that a listener to my podcast told me, which was unverifiable personal gnosis, I think is what it was, where somebody oh, has an experience. <laughs> yeah. And they can't, you know, you, it's true to you, but how does anybody yes. know that that's actually what's real? And as we can say, I mean, I swear I um, talk to aliens. I swear it. <laughs> Yeah. So that dynamic is something where when you experience something like that, I could see that, you know, you, for you, it's so real and so vivid and, and you get such a, such, so much data for that, that is valid to you, but then how it is, how do you interpret that and relation, relate that to other people? And in terms of, you know, back experiences with dreams, it's so cryptic and so designed for you. It's so designed for the individual, I think. So sometimes that's why it's hard to language or even put in a linguistic box. Some of these things very much like any experience. This, absolutely. And this is why I, I find it very important to look back at the individual's early symbols, because it's, it is, it, these things are very personal. Yes, there are collective symbols and there are collective archetypes and all that, but you're pers we're very personalized in the end. The UI in the end is very personal. Yeah. The, were you an only child? I was, I am. Yeah. Which is funny because I have a daughter who was born on a full moon and I'm, it's so difficult having a kid that I think I'm just going to, I'm saying like one and done as well. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I think one is enough and I can see why now my parents had one child because it's just a staggering amount of work. And as so much of, what is it? Um, there's a, there's a branch of philosophy that essentially deals with the over, it's not necessarily like overarching metaphysics of things, but Ex existential philosophy, I guess, maybe is what it is, where it's like you, you get to your base in Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you have all your creature comforts and then you start mm -hmm. really asking what life's about and what's the meaning to things and you start exploring the possibilities of, of why we're here and what's going on. And as we know, most people just fill that with kids. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I was just talking about that today. That's I just want to throw in here that, uh, sorry, go ahead, it's a synchro. No, no, carry on. I just want go to ahead. say second kids are great helpers. That's all. Sure, they are. Yes. And you know, if you have great kids and you're an amazing conscious parent and you have kids, that's a beautiful thing too. So not to denigrate excellent parenthood. And as somebody that spends, I have a nice balance in life where I kind of work part-time on a very flexible schedule. And then I also watch my daughter for another half of the week or for a few days a week, and I'm completely responsible for her. So I've truly come to see how a parent, especially somebody that has multiple kids, is just that job is so worth you know, a staggering amount of money a year for something that is so unthankless in, in corporate yes. consumer capitalism in terms of a paycheck. Yes, absolutely. There's, yeah. it is, a, it is, children are a form of our, one, one of the things I believe we're here to do is we're creators, you know, to create, to generate energy. And that's one of the avenues there's art and there's so many other ways, but it, it's, you know, it's what's kept the race going. <laughs> that's for sure. Okay. So back in your childhood, again, these early days, were you, did you have any fears? Like, and I'm talking like these night kind of fears, things under the beds or the dark wood. Um, you know, I never had really traditional fears that like, let's say Hollywood would perpetrate with the woods being scary and there's a monster in the woods and watch out because there's something in the shadows. I never really had yeah, that. Yeah, it's like I, they're keeping you out of the woods, right? Yeah, they're keeping, it's a way of, 
you know, since everything's mirrored back to front in the unreality signal, it's like most witches I've met in real life are wonderful people, right? And then yes, Hollywood portrays you. them as these, <laughs> <laughs> Hollywood portrays them as these like demons crawling out of a well and they're all soggy and rotten and going to like eat your, eat your, you know, heart out type dynamic. So as I find that so much of Hollywood is actually an op as well as not being very enriching and fulfilling and, and a, a distractor to what is the real thing, the real way that real things operate in life. I do find that in terms of fears, I didn't buy into a lot of those fears and much, much of what Hollywood puts forth as the way that things are, even though we come to realize eventually that those things aren't that way. I did have reoccurring fears and I probably have still had a night terror or two recently in my life of like missing a grade or not getting my homework done and going into the class and being embarrassed because or, or failing a failing a, a class because I didn't perform well, that type of stuff, which mm -hmm. anxiety. Yeah, anxiety about that, about missing something. And then every once in a while, this is a little bit dark and weird, but every once in a while I would have a weird dream that I was disposing of a body and I didn't know if I killed the person or somebody else did. Oh now this is juicy. Oh this my is God, juicy. I have the exact same one. It keeps going and it, you keep having to move the body and you're worried you're gonna get found out. It was, it was, it's definitely the word you're going to get found out, but it's not, it's, it's, it's the not knowing it's kind of like your child's been kidnapped. Right. And you yeah. never find them again. It's, it's, it's worse to not know than to know. So the dynamic of you're having to dispose of some corpse or something, and you don't know if your buddy killed them or you did it. Mm -hmm. And of course you've, again, you've beamed down into the dream, like right in the middle of the, of the situation. You <laughs> don't remember entering the experience. So it's that not knowing of this kind of, was something put on you and you underperform, right? And usually that's just, again, subconscious telling you to not worry about it. And that, as we see that so much of dreams are metaphor and kind of encoded information telling us things about how we can better self. See, I've, about, I've, yeah. I found that body recurring dream to be directly <laughs> related to something I was keeping inside. Mm. Like, mm, interesting. I, I, was, I, was, I was a closet smoker for you, never told you. Right. And it was horrible. It was horrible. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, as soon as that came out, those dreams ended. Oh, really interesting. It's yeah. so directly correlated. Mm -hmm. and, and this wasn't a, this is probably something that's happened three times in my entire life. I, I don't think it's something where it's, maybe it's telling me something that in a former life I was, a, had murdered a former girlfriend or something dreadful, you know, it's like, who knows, but you, you can, I, I generally look at these things as, Again, something that's a bigger picture dynamic in terms of reading into the metaphor of them and seeing how it may not be at all what you think, but it's trying to tell you something bigger about you and how you can adjust things, the puzzle pieces of your life in a metaphorical way that you kind of have to figure out on your own. Yeah, definitely. The, the fear is always something to really push into and see what, what's there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and, and then before we move on past kind of this early stuff, I want to know, did you experience anything you would consider paranormal in your early life? I didn't materially, but I think in experiences where when we wake up in the morning and we're kind of least ourselves, because we've probably been somewhat astral traveling or somewhat out of body. And we, you know, as, as it's nice, like from you know, you could say from kind of an inner perspective or a magical perspective, it's nice if you can do your meditations early in the morning and to kind of, you know, know that as you're waking, you're kind of coming back into, into maybe ego consciousness or coming back to the body. And so you can see that um, that is all a, a reflection of, of what is 
how how you come to be eventually as well. So, but give me give me your question again, Nish, one more time. Just give me your what you asked. So, anything that you would consider paranormal. Paranormal. So basically, like, I didn't have anything where I physically thought like I saw something corporeally, materially, but I did think that when I was coming back from that early morning experience, that I had I had seen things in the dream that were very non-corporeal, right? Like they were something that I would later see in some plant medicine experience, right? It wasn't like the same exact entity, but it was something very weird and vague. Like it was something like the clouds had parted and had some sort of intelligence that they were breathing down on me as the sun rays were shining down on me. And that was something that I felt like I had gotten very early in the morning as I was coming back into waking consciousness. So that's the type of dynamic where then later on I would have like an LSD experience or something where I would see the clouds like breathing and shimmering at me type dynamic. So there's that kind of maybe in the, you know, you could say like the, the Robert Anton, let me turn this off, the Robert Anton Wilson, like cosmic coincidence control center synchronicity sense. Like mm -hmm. maybe I had had a dream about the clouds communicating with me. And then later on, I had an experience where I visually saw that at some later point in my life. Um, Have you never dispersed clouds with your mind? <laughs> Serious no. question, one hundred percent serious. Cue the Kate Bush song, "Cloud Busting." Well, and that's I think kind of an animistic experience, right? Where like you sure. you have something where you can look at nature and see that everything is vibratory and trying to communicate with you in some way. And based upon the filter, I think of it as like when you go to the optometrist and they're like, you know, they they do a that is that B, one or is that two? Yes. Thing. And and I think that sometimes when we can move past the bo our ego and kind of get out of body a little bit, we can communicate with some of those maybe vibratory densities, you might call them, that are, are taking that filter away that is usually blocked by these things that we have on. Right. right. These, these filters we call belief systems, or the belief systems we call filters, however you want to look at it. Yeah, you believe you can't speak that nature, but you can. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's sure, that, exactly. Yeah. And, and that's just the, if you're in nature and you can kind of turn down self and, and talk to spirits, you know, which I don't think are ever going to be in this material reality, but you can have kind of an altered state where then you can feel like you're communicating with them. And I think that animistic traditions do see that. So if you have something where you might be communicating with the rays of the sun or the, the clouds or like some forest spirit, that's probably, that's what I feel resonates with me personally. I agree. And it doesn't yeah. really matter if you are or aren't. It's the experience and what, 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 you know, what you do with that knowledge and that experience and how you build upon it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's all about how you live your life and your deeds and conduct and how mm -hmm. in, in terms of what you, what you choose to do day in, day out is paramount for allowing yourself to then continue in your betterment by how you structure your life so that you can then continue to, I guess you might want to say something that I would say is like work on your occult studies and your, you know, esoteric practices or something like that. How can you, ding, ding, ding. again, yeah, structure, structure so that, you you get this you get this information and no, there are no coincidences. So you have something happen for you, and then it shows you something. And then if you take that in and better self, and then structure your life so that you can continue to have these experiences, I think you open up much more to the magic and the mystery and the enchantment of the world very much. So, and I think we're always kind of getting those messages right, even from something like Hollywood. It's funny. I just watched a uh, an animated feature with my daughter that's called Storks. I don't know if you've seen this no. movie. It's like a goofy animated movie, but the, the beginning of it's about this baby factory where the storks, you know, deliver babies. And the factory at the beginning of the, of the movie is like this enchanted magical alchemy factory where they grow <laughs> these babies and 
the storks deliver them and the movie is set up where they've subsequently stopped delivering the babies and then instead they're working for cornerstore.com which is like this giant <laughs> this giant corporatized amazon right and through the I'll get, just to give away the movie and then eventually they get back to delivering babies they get so basically the enchantment and the magic has been sucked out and so then it's been this giant corporatized piece of crap and it's been just this dull drudgery of the assembly line and then later on they get back to that enchantment right so we can see that when we do things like I was just talking about and how we structure our lives, we can open up to these experiences. And then I think probably our dream life will get more vivid too as we don't act so robotic in our usual routines. I think dreams probably are more vivid and, and come, you have more interesting of a, and compelling of a dream life when you don't live so robotically day to day. That's mm, at least, agree. yeah, what I've found outside of being a parent for the last year and a half, which has shut down my dream. <laughs> okay so you said something and i we anyone who listens to the show on the regular of course we want to know more about this so you mentioned lsd and hallucinogenics essentially so can you give us some highlights that would that would seem relevant to the subject of consciousness and awakenings within consciousness Yes, absolutely. And I, I've kind of given you guys some insights as to this dynamic, this term of tryptamine dreams yes. as we preset this up. So, I mean, I, in recent years, I could tell a bit of a magical backstory to do with essentially a life-changing tri trip that I had externally and then internally, which is similar to a little bit of a trip report, but extends into dream time and an ongoing somewhat unique relationship that I have with a reoccurring dreamlike altered state. And it started with a catalyst and then has essentially become reliably repeatable in my life. And I know how to repeat it pretty much on a T. So I had two initial experiences with um, a sacrament. It was basically a, a DMT sacrament. And one was essentially in a shamanic context. And another was in a, a more or less a magical ceremonial context related to something from essentially an OTO ritual. And both were somewhat related to documentary projects that I've been involved with. And I find that I use my projects as very much a experience to help. It's like just by making the project is a huge experience, some of which happen to be around these very paradigm destroying kind of esoteric principles, something of like these, you know, whether it's a plant medicine experience or some sort of ceremonial ritual experience, right? So I had these two kind of initial encounters and they were both astronomically life-changing to say the least. It was something where you could essentially you know, BC, AD, your life around these experiences, which happened kind of one after another, I think separated by just a few months. And they were, they felt very much like a reconnection to essentially like Samadhi or this source that I spoke of, which we can extend into saying is kind of like a dream source. And I almost think of it as essentially like the white light void of unity consciousness, which is also thought of as like a waterfall of pure love and I, my colleague on my one project calls it glassolalia space love, which is kind of mesh network activation of just like melting into the all of everything and getting these profound data transmissions, which aren't so much always a mind thing, but more, more of a heart thing, right? You feel into these amazing, incredible experiences. And I find that as entheogens are neurotransmitters, our body has a full essentially delivery system for these things that's essentially built into our hardware. So what does that say about us, right? That these things are perfectly designed to interface with us. And I find that- Absolutely. You know, dreams themselves, I very much resonate with that kind of scientific principle that the pineal gland is actually releasing dimethyltryptamine and that our dreams are essentially tryptamine dreams. So as I had had this kind of massive 
experience with these two sacraments that were basically the same sacrament in these two different contexts, it was, they were both eerily synchronistically similar, as I said, and to reference that kind of Robert Anton Wilson phrase of the cosmic coincidence control center, right? Because they both also happened, little did I know, except I learned after the fact on probably what is likely like ley lines or dragon lines. And one of them was actually at a sacred site. And they had very similar characteristics where I was standing up during the experience and my feet were kind of connected on the rounded soil, which we know is important. And in one of them, I was inside at night and the other one I was outside in the evening, kind of looking up at essentially the sun star stargate, which I very much kind of resonate with the fact that souls can essentially enter in and leave through as this, you know, white light void of unity consciousness. And this is something that oftentimes people talk about at death or near death is this white light tunnel. And it's this kind of worm tunnel exit of pure love, right? So I had this experience. And it's really, of course, like so many of these things, it's difficult to encapsulate the experience into essentially a linguistic box. But a general stage just breakdown of this experience I can just kind of give, give everybody is that the commonalities of the experience are essentially a dissolution into fractals and essentially an evaporation into the sense of self. And then the sensation of being transported by white light at the speed of light somewhere else. And then if a melting essentially into oneness with a, a, a sense that all is space and time outside of time. And then after that, it's essentially like a complete dissolution of the ego and emerging into absolute consciousness, which many Eastern traditions call essentially shamadi, samadhi, right? Or a crescendo. And then uh, after that, there's this reconstruction of all the parts that encapsulate the individual and a reconstruction of the ego and the body. And then after that is an intermediary resonance with essentially a, the closed eye astral plane, the imagination of the magician, we might say, because I think that from a hierarchical standpoint, if we're in like a 3D material reality, many of our kind of 4D and 5D realities do look like other worlds. And then as you go up that kind of hierarchy to the samadhi, you get to the kind of pure white light, right? Which is the, the highest kind of vibratory level. And so after that, you're kind of coming down this ladder in, back into terra firma, and then you have this reintegration of the society, into the society, which for many people is oftentimes the hardest part of an experience like this. But it's, it's so many layers of the onion. And for me, it was very um, profound, both of them, because since this happened, I have then had this you know, amazing ability to recreate the experience, not so much from a meditative perspective, but I've had as I've tried to get better at meditating in the last year, especially since this experience happened, it probably happened about a year and a half ago after the time that we're at the time of this recording, I've been able to recreate it with, let's say, essentially another Eucharist, right? So I have found that the Eucharist can either be in a very, very small way meditation, which usually, if I'm lucky, I'll do in the morning, like I mentioned, but usually it ends up inevitably happening at night. And then after I have this experience, then I do find that in the morning, like I was speaking of, I get these kind of most profound downloads, which are probably happening subconsciously during sleep. And then as I come back and I wake up, I get profound thoughts and profound creative inspiration for things. But I have found also that as we talk about a Eucharist, like I had this initial Eucharist experience that was very life transformative, that then kind of extended into dream time. But then I've been able to recreate this Eucharist, which is very profound with cannabis. And also, it's a two-stage thing where if I have a little tiny bit of cannabis, and it doesn't need to be a lot, 
And I also listen to 432 hertz beats or 528 hertz anything, yes. whether it's yes. a chanting or oming. I think it's a two-part component Eucharist where I'll essentially go into like a meditative place and I put on like very nice headphones and listen to something that's at one of those two frequencies. And then I have just a little tiny puff of cannabis and I basically can recreate this amazing experience. So that is a pretty special treasure that I think these experiences have given me where I feel like they have been profound experiences that have had permanent, beneficial, long-lasting, perhaps lifelong beneficial effects. Because then I just feel like I'm this, I'm very lucky to get a little, ever so slight little transmission of this when I have this experience. And then again, I find that I almost always do it at night as like my, you know, family's asleep. On the rare occasion, I'll do this, you know, maybe I'll do it like once a quarter, have a little puff of this. And then I'll have this amazing like blast off melt into the all experience. And then that next morning, I'm like feeling super creative, right? So it's not so much like I'm having visions at night and dreams, like traditional dreams where you see things or you have experiences with other corporeal beings. I more have a, a feeling that is like I've just gotten data information, again, feeling into things. It's not visual. And then I'll have these profound, amazing thoughts and ideas in the morning. So you, That's amazing. You weren't Sorry, having breakthrough stuff on pot, basically. You have, let me rephrase that. When you were on DMT, mm -hmm. did you have any breakthrough experiences with your DMT or ayahuasca? Yeah, I did. So to, to kind of give that encapsulation summary, it was weird because I sent you guys two images that... I have them. I know, I know it's difficult to reference images on a, like a spoken word podcast, but I sent you two images that kind of encapsulate maybe what a visual perception of the experience would look like. But Again, it's not so much a visual thing, it's more of a feeling thing. And it's more of a feeling like you are, you're, you're, you're a, a laptop computer that is typically what they would call from a technical standpoint, you'd appreciate this Jerry air-gapped, mm -hmm. which means it's not connected to the internet. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly your, your laptop is connected to like the astral internet. So you get this kind of profound download transmission from the cloud by being able to connect up with this. And I don't think that it's about the cannabis I think it's about the fact that the original Eucharist did something to me that has switched on things in the brain or done some little mi minor thing where, as we know, that as human beings kind of evolve to higher states of consciousness, they're able to tap into higher things. And we could, you know, most, yes. most things with like the chakra ladder and stuff, that stuff never really ever comes online for a lot of people. It's just kind of fashion to a lot of people. And I think that even though for me, it's a very, it's a very tall, small thing. It's still a profound thing, but I think I'm able to somehow access things that most human beings are able to access. And the cannabis is just kind of re-switching on this little thing that it is, was installed during those original experiences. That's really interesting. I'm showing your pictures now to people watching. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's interesting because what I do is I, I basically sit in a chair in essentially a meditative pose. And it, what it does is it becomes essentially like a moving meditation. So it's not, you know, typical meditation is interesting because it very much oftentimes is like you must sit still. And I've certainly also tried to have a daily practice where I do that as well, where I try to let, if a thought comes in, it's kind of like clouds passing by again, as we reference clouds, it's like cloud, the, the random chatter brain thought comes in and you just let it pass away. And some people find that we're all so different. We're all such unique snowflakes that some people find that meditation is easier for them if it's them thinking about nothing or focusing on one thing. And I have found that focusing on a single thing really helps, um, you know, in my 
meditative practice is I'm pretty amateur at it. And John Michael Greer recommended for me to example, as an example, to pull it up like a tarot card, right? And just focus on the tarot card. And as you're what in the East, they call your asana, which is your pose as you're meditating and your pranayama, which is your breathing. As you kind of get better at those things and you can kind of get out of body a little bit, sometimes people find that it's easier for them to focus on something like maybe a tarot card and envision that tarot card as a world that you can then go into, right? So everybody's so different. We all have to find what we're good at with meditation. And so I've tried to do that, but I also do find that when I do this experience, it's very unusual. I put the headphones on and I find something that's like a 432 hertz something, whether or not it's a chant or like some sort of shamanic drum or some Mm -hmm. sort of what seems like a weird occult chant. And then I'll put that on and then I'll sit in a chair. And this is always happening at night. I always do it at the very end of the evening. But it's just me and I know there'll be no distractions. And then I have a little kind of puff of the Eucharist. And I don't think that the Eucharist is one thing alone. I think it's kind of like a two-part component, right? Where it's both the frequency and the internal thing that you're inhaling. And then I'll take a little puff of that and then I go into these essentially like movements, these what Martin Ball calls mirrored bilateral symmetry, which is these weird kind of octagon figure eight movements. Yes, yes. And, and that's what in those images I referenced to you guys, there's these kind of spirals going up this character that looks like an illuminated astral body. So I, I think that from the, in an Eastern perspective, there's these deities that have all these arms, like, uh, what is it? Um, Shiva. Shiva. Right. And I think what, what that's really doing is it's kind of like our third eye, the dot on the forehead. It's, it's a signal of an activated higher state to connection to self. Because I go into these weird mudra dances where essentially I'm flowing in these figure eight poses. Mm-hmm. And I have this movement in my fingers. It starts in the fingers and then it extends into the appendages. And then I'm basically sitting there and I do this, you know, this kind of these infinity loops throughout me. And it's kind of like cosmic astral surgery. So there's a, there's a, dynamic of the experience where my physical body is doing this movement, which again, you don't want to overanalyze and you don't want to be overly critical thinking about why you're doing this because it just stops the experience. And that's why meditation is helpful. But then I find that I just, if, as I feel into what my body wants to do, I do these movements while I have my headphones on and it's, it's to the rhythm and the frequency of whatever the beat is, whatever this 528 or 432 Hertz beat is. So that's kind of like the track that lays down the baseline mm-hmm. of the movement. And then while I'm having the experience, then from a, a, a mind perspective, you're getting kind of profound thoughts, right? Like things that are just profound realizations that kind of are thinking outside the box dynamics. Right, right, right. And then that seems to extend later on into, the, into dreams when then I eventually fall asleep and then I wake up. It seems like I, I'm probably getting the information during sleep. But then as I wake up, I, I seem to have a profound thought of like, oh, yeah, I should have done that. Or I have a new chapter idea for this thing I'm writing. Or I have a new idea for a film. Or I have you know, this profound realization or a right? program or yeah, I do the same thing. And yeah. I think your, your dreams cue them up on deck when you're ready to yes. accept it. It's like, it's like a Pez dispenser of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I have found that th- that's kind of the, the high volume version of it. Mm-hmm. And I found that if I do, as I get, as I'm not a very good meditator, but as I'm getting a slightly better at it, I find that I have the smallest amount of this, what you might call I, I dare dare I say kind of kundalini activation, but you know what I mean? Well, I'm sitting in the yeah. traditional yeah. meditative pose and I start, my spine starts doing this kind of shimmering side to side figure eight mm. infinity loop thing. Where if I was to take the Eucharist of the music and the, the sacrament, whatever the sacrament high. may be, it'll go to level, you know, nine out of 10. But if mm. I just do it as a meditative thing and I am lucky enough to get deep enough, it'll go to like three of 10. So I think this is something that's within almost all of us. And it's just like, how are you able to turn this on? 
right? And Definitely. so I, I have a very profound appreciation of these initial two experiences that I think have given me this great treasure. Yeah. And I think, you know, everyone can do it. And if you think you can't, that's your problem. Mm. I just want to say about these pictures, what I, when I look at them, I see a lot of occult symbolism. And besides that, I would say the serpent always represents the Kundalini energy rising. Up. Yep. So Absolutely. I don't know if they're arms as much as, uh, vampiric tendrils <laughs> from Shiva <laughs> to suck your energy. That's more what it's like to me, but uh, yeah, no, that, those are very awesome. Are those from anything in particular? Like the Bible? You, you know, I can't, I don't reference that. I, I, I should reference, it's nice to always reference when you pull art, the artists themselves. I don't off the top of my head know who the artist is. And I kind of found them just by, it was something like a Pinterest search or something where they came upon them. But both of those, I don't know if they're related or they're the same artist, but you'll notice that there's, similar corollaries between these two images. And for people that are just listening, they're essentially kind of centered, perfect symmetrical images of somebody that's in a meditative state. And then you see an astral version of them ab above themselves with essentially a, a glowing serpent around them. That's like a Kundalini coil that's rising them up to a higher place, which you can think of as like a higher state or dimension. And you have your kind of two almost like Masonic pillars on each side. And it's very nature-based and you see this kind of perfect opposites of polarity of like male and female yin and yang as we transit here to this dimension just to experience some polarity Joaquin for a while. Boaz. It's very Freemasonic. Yeah, so those, those just from a visual standpoint help just kind of show a little tiny, maybe one one hundredth of what I feel when I'm doing the experience because I call it kind of the cosmic car wash <laughs> as I have these waves of energy hit me that I think as I'm doing this movement, it's, it, it's almost like you want to read into it by saying, like, is your movement driving the, the cosmic waves that are hitting you of profound, like what feels like a thousand tentacles from the astral that are doing little upgrades on your physicality, right? Like it feels like they're going into your DNA and reprogramming things or they're going into your bloodstream and pumping new energy into it. Or it feels like a cosmic, you know, float tank astral surgery type dynamic. So it almost feels like you're getting little micro upgrades in your physicality whenever the experience happens so it's very enriching and fulfilling and, and then again it's that that extension into the night into the nighttime that is really one of the reasons i always i thought to bring it up with you guys yeah no it's very nice it's very interesting yeah i uh very good i'll put these pictures in the show notes if you're listening later so come on over to uh, our website one something something very significant um, you've touched on here, and I call it grinding the stone. And I've been doing it a long time. I'm a, I was a dancer for a long time in my ancient history, and um, I mean I still am, but I I'm not out doing that. And um, it's movement. And what I sense and hear from a lot of people these days, and this is directly related to um, accessing states of consciousness and all that we talk about here, is so many people are disengaged from their physical body, their shell, right? And the and um, which pulls you out of the experience somehow. And so this movement that you're speaking of that was very specific is completely important. And we see it throughout ancient history. We can talk about the dervishes. I mean, it's everywhere. Yes, yes. And um, there is something about, and, and, and the other thing that you brought up was to not, you don't engage the left brain. You're not thinking about it. Stop thinking about what you may look like or all this. It's, you let it happen and it happens naturally. Um, it really is an avenue towards unlocking other states. That 
in addition to the sacrament and the hurts, I'm on board. <laughs> yeah, because I have a great recipe out here, Niles. It is. And I think that as we find that, one thing I also, this is, a, this is almost a, to talk about even a larger, weird, bonkers, metaphysical thing, is I, I very much Not, resonate mm. with the idea that much of reality is all set up, and it's a setup for us to kind of <laughs> internally grow, right? And so I almost think that, as we talked, Jerry will love this, is the doom systems of like the oily tentacles of the power pyramid mm. shut down access to higher states. Mm -hmm. That it, it, I almost think of it from, again, a synchronistic perspective, like that night when I turn on that specific 432 hertz, or 528 hertz or whatever special hertz that I find on, you know, I'll just do a YouTube search. Right, right, right. And some of it's corny and some of it's excellent. But as I find that exact hertz and then the exact, you know, um, sacrament that I use, like that exact strain of cannabis, it's like that hertz and that strain were designed to meet at that time space vector. Mm -hmm. And I was supposed to be at that place in that time to access this higher information that is the reason for why you're here to be given that information on that day, on that day. And that that's how everything works in our magical world. And that the, the doomy system of un, the unreality signal that turns us into compartmentalized robots, you know, shuts down these things. And so you could argue all those suppression systems that we could go down the list of the conspiracy of suppression systems from, you know, comes trails to fluoride to GMOs, mm -hmm. all that stuff is just trying to sh do all these like little things they can to shut down these divine beings that are very much, you know, as reality Trump. can very, very much be thought of as a, as a, you know, us living in a larger divine dream, and I do buy the what resonates again from unverifiable personal gnosis. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's our favorite source. <laughs> is uh, is very much that you know we are living in a that all is mind and that the universe is mental. Right? Yes, so we, as a in the aggregate, have profound capabilities for creating reality, and it's not like yeah. that's a whole ten thousand hour discussion. But our minds are hugely powerful for what can come into manifestation because the inside is the cause and the outside is the effect. And that's the power of mm -hmm. something like esotericism where you realize that everything in your inner life, your kind of secret life, not necessarily the life that you tell everybody in your day-to-day -day reality, but you might share on a podcast like this or share with your closest comrades is, is what you're really here for. And as we learn that through our past, then you see that there's these ways to access things that then help connect us to these larger things. And once, uh, hopefully, if we were to have this conversation in five more years from now, I could do this totally endogenously. You know, I wouldn't even need a Eucharist. Maybe I just do it with the music. Or, or I find that if I just do one of these two components, it only gets to plus three instead of plus, plus nine. And the combination of the two of them really gets you there. So I see the beauty and the, and the amazingness of something like cannabis, which I have such an amazing respect for. I do occasionally read from occult sources or magical texts that they're very down on any sort of sacrament, and sometimes they're very denigrating to marijuana. And I've, I've really come to, to have the Rastafarian attitude on, on marijuana and cannabis, that it's just such an amazing, beautiful plant that it, it, I can see why through time it's been so denigrated and shut down because it's such a special, special ability to access higher states. Yeah, well, like, and that like we, our biology door, yeah. is receptive to it, which is, <laughs> I mean, come on, it's like a lock and a key. You, you, exactly. mentioned, you mentioned strain before. I assume you're, it's an indica? Yes, it is. Yes. Okay, okay. In, in the couch. That's how I remember it. <laughs> couch lock. Oh my God. That's couch lock weed. Yeah. In the couch. It chills you out. And you know, I'm not, again, it's not so much about, it's not about, yeah, I mean, I appreciate and I have a deep respect for the plant. Mm -hmm. But again, I think the plant, it's not, it's not so much coming from the plant. It's just like the plant and the music 
are doing something. It's like you said, Nish, where it's a key that opens a little door. Mm -hmm. And so we each are such, it's the combo. And so it's like, we're each such unique individual snowflakes and we each have our different ways of accessing something. So as you said, that maybe as we, as, as a, a form of dance around the campfire can get us there. Like as we're all in a village and we're all doing our drumming and, and, um, analog music around the campfire 700 years ago could get us there or yes. some sort of shamanic ikaros could get us there. I think that there's all sorts of different ways they can get us there or some sort of, you know, um, ritual that we do that is an invocation of something can get us there. Since we're all so different. The movement is very important. And a lot of times even starting out with just repetition in movement, um, like for me specifically, and why I call it grinding the stone is I actually it gets very meditative for me. Like I said, the dervish thing, I spin or I I walk a circle and get completely out of out of the space completely. So I'm just my body's on habitual, but there's something so lactic acid comes to play. We're in movement, right? We're releasing these acids. That the, the um, mm. there's a bunch of endorphins that are going on with the body. So there's a lot going on, and if we're we're already tuning into um, a hertz that's giving us a hemisync effect in the brain, and then we've got a sacrament that somehow is also um, uh, aligned to our physiology, to our biology. This you know, there's great potential here for um higher experiences if that's the only way i can wrap it yeah and i find that uh, again to reference like the synchronicity of it it's like a specific hertz and a specific strain of sacrament the combination of those two will always I, i haven't tried to do it where it's repeatable to the point where it's like that one specific place that i accessed can i get back mm-hmm. to that specific place with those that combination is again right Versus if it, if it's always going to be something that's a different feeling of space, and I and I I always do find that many of my experiences are very kind of cosmic, and mm-hmm. I, I I feel that ultimately from a, a larger kind of spatial model perspective, I'm very much again unverifiable personal gnosis. <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to feel like we are in very much of a closed system materially, and I don't know yes. what it is, but yes. I feel like in the growth lab, the training ground of the realm of Earth that one of the cons of the system is to get us to think that we're in this massive, vast, never-ending thing that we can go in trillion, gazillion pound starships that is really something that we do once we access an out-of-body experience, right? Because a lot of my experiences have been very cosmic and astral. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a, the, the system is kind of tricking us into think that is what, what is more spiritual is really more material, right? So that we are constrained to thinking that we need Elon Musk to send us to Mars instead of the fact that we can get way beyond higher states just through our own endogenous internal esoteric capabilities. Can we even get to Mars? That's the, you know, that's what, I don't think we can go there like in Iraq. Right, you, right. You know, but so, within the, 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 the largeness of the inner space, we certainly can, Absolutely, right? Absolutely, I'm not saying it can't be gotten to, but I don't think it can be gotten to by rocket. Yes. Yeah. Inner space is a great way to look at it because yeah. it's like as within, so without is that is the, is the inner space even more vast than the outer space? And it's funny, one of the projects that I'm associated with is this totally bonkers terra incognita thing, which is essentially like an inner space version of a, of a space program. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's essentially like, you know, mapping EEG, you know, these brain scans to people in various states of consciousness, whether it's through a meditative thing or some sort of tryptamine induced state and seeing what's going on in the brain. But it's, it's, as we know, I mean, the inner, the inner 
spaces and inner worlds are, I think, infinitely more vast than what we're tricked to thinking is an external thing. I think one of the cons is to externalize everything so much from us because yes. again, the inside is the cause and the outside is the effect. And so many people that are just on puppet strings are trained to just look outside themselves and feel so disempowered by this system that again reduces and reduces divine beings. Well, and if you think about also like the sensory experience we have in our shells, right? They're very limited. Our, our spectrum of light's limited. Everything's very limited because we're in this, we're swimming in this mass. These that scuba people get. suits suck. They do. They really, they're so limited. And um, in, in a way, I think that if one is open and seeking um, any bit of experience with the, the inner space and most people experience that in at least these days through dreams right this is the more commonly accessible way to get to it um you, you there's nothing holding you back but those particular um the chains of of thoughts that are somehow bound to this this outer world that um have a gravity of their own so it's always shocking in a dream when you're flying because you think in my waking life i can't fly so it you know there's something provocative about it and then when you start pushing further into mm -hmm. what can i do what is possible here um we start to see an opening of that the the grandness the bigness Absolutely. And like a lot of cultures have said from the past is like they almost feel that the dream time is coming back, right? Like that we see that as, as so much of, again, what is illusory is kind of mirrored back to front where you realize that so much of what you thought it was is in fact really the opposite. You can see that that shows how false a lot of things are that are very doomy and shut things down that turn off the enchantment of the world, right? Mm -hmm. so, so, so many cultures that weren't a part of the kind of machine had known had known that and and some of these experiences especially the two initial experiences have given me this remembering it's almost like a remembering of what you are and and a knowing it's almost like a knowing myself like they say on the oracle of delphi which is it it, mm -hmm. it kind of made me feel like i had done this 4500 years ago in india mm -hmm. right and you see these you see these deities that are have these poses that are doing this this again kind of what i think is an extension of the third eye you know higher state connection deeper understanding, deeper wisdom, a channel to something more divine. And that, that is harsh. Part of that is achieved through movement. So when I was doing these movements originally, and I have, I have footage of this, it's, it's on, it's not publicly available, but I could send you guys a link of it because it's pretty bonkers and it requires a two hour conversation to set up, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it looks like something that could be something that like a yogi was doing, you know, that's how I envision thousands of years ago. Yes. Yeah. That's what I'm seeing in my, my mind's eye. Yeah, and there's this term that Philip K. Dick said in Vallis, which is a super the bonkers book. The Empire but he, <laughs> he had a he had a statement where he said that what is it? It's phylogeny is recapitulated in ontogeny, I think is what it yeah. is. It's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. But what that essentially means is that the phylogenic memory is the memory of the species compared to our own memory, which is ontogenic memory. Mm. And phylogeny is recapitulated in ontogeny, which means that by having an experience like this, you suddenly get a larger memory of the species as a whole, or mm. not so much the species as a whole, but a larger memory of maybe your past memory, right? So if you are many thousands of years old and you've been here many times, you get some information on yourself through that whole overarching period of time, right? And so I, I, I felt like 
during the initial experiences and some of the reoccurring experiences and some of the waking up experiences that I remembered something about something that I had done probably very long ago that was not this life, but a previous one. Yeah, and yes, I think we also have access to the collective. So there's some group collective experiences that I think everyone has access to as well. Maybe yes. called the, the collective Akashic record, if you will, or whatever. I don't know what it is, but I think that's out there too. Yeah, absolutely. And it's hard if people haven't, it's hard to kind of concretize some of these concepts, mm -hmm. especially if somebody is, I don't want to just say like an armchair, but if they haven't had them personally themselves, but they're just interested in things that are subjects that we're talking about, it's kind of hard to, I always do find that it's nice to reference things specifically in your life, just because it shows that you're actually doing things. And so much of what we try and do in our lives is our deeds and conduct and shows that show that we're actually doing things in our life. But if you are interested in these things and haven't yet had these experiences, you know, just keep going, like keep working on what yes. you can do to structure your life so that you can give yourself space and time to have some of these experiences. And if it's something where, however you get there, if you find that it's something that is a calling for you to drink ayahuasca or have some sort of, um, you know, become a, get, get involved with a group that's doing some sort of occult studies and somewhat of a mystery tradition or mm -hmm. whatever, whatever interests you, you know, keep going and, and definitely move beyond just the, the book reading and into the actual practical application of some of these things. Because once you get some of this information and it's not like I'm an expert or an all knowledgeable one, but on the small amounts that I've gotten this, it's like makes life so much more worth it and so much more special that you can have really weird conversations like this. <laughs> There's, this is not a weird conversation. This is actually one of our normal conversations. <laughs> Standard a, operating procedure. <laughs> actually, absolutely. There's a really good quote in um, a book by Dr. Stephen Skinner that I want to read. It just oh, echoes what Skinner. you said, just, but I have to go get the book. So go get the book. Continue, yeah. So it, one of the things that I wanted to mirror here and is the fact that we can see the world is is mysterious and enchanted and beautiful. This is all a matter of perspective, right? And and we get this, and, and the more we push into these experiences um, with the recipe you just gave us, with um, dreaming, the more it becomes that, the more we feed into that. And on a mundane level, everyone can, If so getting beyond the reading, yes. And every time you go to sleep, you have an opportunity without doing anything else to say to yourself consciously, I, I want to um, wake up within the dream. I want to remember a dream. I mean, I don't know where, you know, you yeah. are, everyone is within it, but to at least give yourself little subconscious or conscious, but subconscious cues to, to pull in something and, and access the magic within and um and then you can take it from there so maybe you actually someone actually has a lucid dream and then that that moves further down the road moves you you your the neural pathways say this can happen this is possible and then then you just keep going yeah and there's that kind of yin yang polarization dynamic of the day life and the night life where i think as we are sleeping we get we get profound things shown to us but there's this kind of funny joke, again, I'll reference another animated movie in Monsters University, which of course I'm watching all these movies now that I have a 17 month old daughter. There's a character that's hilarious. That's like a new age philosophy major. And which and character goes, is that? It's this goofy looking like, oh, like purple fuzzy character. And he's yes, a new yes. age philosophy major. And he's like, I hope you, I thought you might want to keep a dream journal. <laughs> and it's, it's very goofy, but it's resonant, right? Because any, any magical group will tell you, you should really 
do a, do a, a diary and a journal on your dreams because as we get something, some transmission at night, it's very easy to forget it. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a new agey joke, but then also very real in a, in, in a cult stance to, if you have a profound dream, you're going to forget it. So you might as well, you know, get your kind of journal out and write down what it was because from a balance of day and night, you get these informations at night, which usually are coming from, might want to say a subconscious mind place or a higher self place or a, yeah, like however a you want to wrap it, however you want, yeah, whatever wrapper you want to put it in. And it, it's up to you to kind of, it's, it's effort and it's work to do daily practice of logging these things so that then you can maybe one day look back at that in a journal entry and be like, I understand that more now because I'm a different person now and I'm more developed now. So I think that dreams also sometimes will give us information that's not necessarily relevant at that exact time, but maybe it's designed for you to log that, for you to do that work, which is work, to write that down, to get it jotted in a, in a log. And then later on, revisit it. Maybe that's part of another synchronistic element. Maybe, maybe that's another kind of the equation cubed instead of just squared, where then later on, yes, if you took yes. the effort to write that down, you might get more out of it later as well. It's like your little magical treasure hunt. It's like reclaiming yourself in a weird way. To I know that sounds cheesy, yes. but this stuff's real. <laughs> treasure hunt. That's great. That's a great way to say it. Treasure hunt is so true. Treasure, treasure. It is treasure. It really is. Jer, I see you found the book. You've the quote? No, I can't find it. The book is uh, Techniques of High Magic by... Well, I love Skinner. Francis I think he's King. just... Cool. The quote was so basically, you know, okay, you've been reading and reading and reading and reading, and you, you're waiting to start doing your, start your cult practice. He's like, get off your ass and start. There's no better time than now, you know. You don't need to read everything to begin. Yeah, my, my colleague on my documentary project told me that the beginning of mysticism is really the end of reading, mm -hmm. which is a massive <laughs> leap because most people don't read shit, right? So right. <laughs> it's, it's huge to just be a, a reader of, of dense texts. And it takes a long time to really pick apart a dense text. You know, it's like a university study where the amount of time it takes to read through the Corpus Hermeticum is huge. And you got to read it and reread it and reread it. Yeah, And so that deserves praise and recognition. So if you are an avid reader and are well-read, that's awesome. And I just did an essay on how, you know, reading doesn't necessarily mean you need to sit there and read off the page. You know, you can, there are amazing technological ways to turn books into audiobooks these days. So you can do <laughs> right. it during your commute. And as somebody that's quite dyslexic, Magic. I always struggled with reading. So I do find that since text-to-speech has been invented, I've read thousands and thousands of books. And so I, I give a huge credit to the technology of text-to-speech to help me expand my mind. And then also, on top of being an avid reader, I do also aim to have experiences. So even if you are reading a lot, that deserves recognition. It's not to be denigrated. But once you get really Jedi, you can you really, really, really start getting information from other places. And you will find that the next level of wisdom comes from unverifiable personal gnosis <laughs> instead of just text on the page. Because to some extent, you know, language is a denigration of, of knowledge and experience. So, again, it's hard to encapsulate certain things into words. Right. And your truth might not be somebody else's truth. It's what makes your personality, your, yourself, your soul, whatever you want to call it, grow. It's what you need to know. I can't remember what old, I don't know if it's Plato, I don't remember who it is. It's some, one of the old greats, um, said something about the power of a text or manuscript in itself being in your presence mm -hmm. is somehow unlocking 
you know, it's, you're on another level already processing it, just being in the presence of it. And so that's why like a couple of the, um, the more famous like uh, medieval period grimoires there, you know, um, are said like to, to even own a copy, to have a copy mm -hmm. is dangerous. Right. And, and then there's the famous scene in um, the modern, you know, the Angelica Houston Adams family where, you know, they're op the books, right. There's more mm -hmm. in here. These are more than just words. you know. Right. Right. And so much of magic, one of the secret sauce things of magic, it's not like I'm an expert musician. I would still very much call myself an initiate and not an adept, but I'm always working on it. And a secret sauce thing is that most people think that even if you're lucky enough to access some ancient grimoire that will not be publicly available, it'll be in some quasi-aristocratic library. Mm -hmm. If you're lucky enough to access that and are able to decipher it and read it, it's all about your internal world building in your mind to set up that dynamic, right? People yes. think that the book is the magic. Yep. And like Alan Watts said, you know, the menu is not the meal. It's just, it's just like a, a cipher for what you can do yourself. So it's like you have to, again, meditation and world building and how much of our minds help, how much of our inner minds create something. If you sit down and create a world in your mind, the book is just a kind of a, a map for what you need to create internally. Right. And yes. so many books leave that out. They don't tell you that. They don't tell you like, you need to do this on, you need to do this yourself and you need to build it in your mind. And then you need to try it out and you need to run the ritual and run the practice and then start seeing what happens and start seeing if you get results. And it's hard, right? It's really hard. It takes a lot of work. And again, if somebody is listening to this and they haven't had so many direct experiences, it's okay. It's like you, you, you just keep going and you will get there. And at some point you do transition from only reading or only kind of being what they call armchair. Mm -hmm. into having some experiences and and that's okay and then you go back and you have an experience and then maybe nothing happens for a long period it feels like it's you know the seasonal thing where you're kind of maybe it's something in your astrology for the next year and a half where nothing really goes on and then you go back into your reading phase and then you have another experience and it's kind of a cyclical nature mm -hmm. i agree and i love that you mentioned alan watts i mean i just he was so great I mean, go, people go listen to Ellen Watts. Yeah, um, let's, Terrence let's, McKenna too. Yeah, Terrence, of course. But and he gets he, mentioned so often here, and Ellen Watts is, it seems to not be mentioned as much. You know, it's funny you mentioned both of them because at the time I'm about to move, but I've been living at the time of this recording in Marin County, which is where both of them had lived. Ellen Watts lived in yes. a houseboat in We're Sausalito. Sorry. I love or the houseboats down there. Yeah, in Sausalito. Yeah, and then I'm I'm currently living in San Rafael, California, which is actually where Terrence passed away. So, um, and I think and Philip K. Dick lived in San Rafael as well. So the Bay Area has had a an interesting correlation with some quite amazing spiritual philosophers, you could say. Philip K. Dick, though, we could talk about him for oh, hours. Too many to <laughs> name. Too many to name for sure. Really, from the Bay that that have done time in the Bay Area for sure. So, okay, let's do a little bit um, of just nuts and bolts stuff. So when you dream, how does the, how does the basic landscape look? What's the architecture like? Color, um, you know, the sounds, tactile stuff? It's funny because I find that my documentary work, which I always try and my kind of elevator pitch is I try and combine high production values with essentially beauty, which really secretly means combine high production values with occult and esoteric content. I don't necessarily put that right front and center, but that's what it really means. So that I find that I'm, I've been very influenced by certain people visually, and that hopefully that's a representation of the documentary work. And I find that during 
internal experiences, I do have a lot of vivid saturated colors. It's like everything's like perfect frame rate, high saturation. Like the saturation, it's like a Photoshop uh, scene with 8 billion layers and the saturation is cranked in, to incredible high amounts, right? Oh, wow. So it's almost like bioluminescent sometimes. But not always, but sometimes. So I, I do have a lot of dreams that happen in an evening time under a very celestial kind of vanilla sky. And I've found that, again, Cosmic Coincidence Control Center, I find that a lot of the dream, a lot of the experiences that I have had that I've been very lucky enough to have through special alignments in life and just the stars aligned at that time-space vector happened under a very ethereal vanilla sky. So I do find that I have a lot of dreams in the evening. I guess dusk is my favorite time of, of the day. Oh, liminal. Totally. Yeah. But again, a lot of them are weird things from the past that are just kind of like, seem like a standard operating kid at summer camp experience, mm -hmm. maybe under this kind of what, what is called in cinematography blue hour too, when the sun sets and the sun is gone, but everything's yes. blue for about an hour. They call it blue hour. And most, a lot of, a lot of directors like to shoot at blue hour because it's very cinematic, right? Is that it's, different from violet hour? Why do I always think of the violet hour? It generally is like full sunset and then maybe it goes to violet and then blue. Okay. And it's kind of like when you're, I, I witnessed the last eclipse that happened. I went up to Oregon for it. And it's very much like a 360 kind of sunset combined with blue hour. But yeah, yeah. that dynamic is also very present as well. And even though it's happening in a normal like 3D material reality, it's not like you're in fractal holography of some sort of weird psychedelic experience. But it's very much like, again, you have a dream of you with the red bench outside your parents' house or you at summer camp or you, you know, on, in Hawaii having a grand vacation. So they're very, very material reality, very corporeal. So, and then, okay, so, and now more on the um, harder edge stuff, like actual, so this time, actual architecture. Are there, um, do you encounter spaces that you, that are familiar, um, or is everything always, new and shifting um i guess for me i get the same buildings but they're always a little different but it's the same building like i have a house and it can be different so that's yeah it's it's kind of like the more enchanted version of somewhere i have been in the past so it's like if i was as a high in high school if we were all drinking down at the lake or something and there was a dock at the lake it's like seven years later in a dream that will be revisited again the two people that are from my past or one from my present that are there doing some weird thing together. It'll be it's, Nish and it's, I. <laughs> it's a, it's a variant. <laughs> it's a variant on that location. It's usually nature based or else it's somewhere residential. It's never, I never really have these big city dreams, but it's somewhere somewhat nature based. And then a, a slight variant of that. It's a little bit more the hypersaturated version of it, but it's also hard sometimes when we're having, if we are meditating and we're trying to visualize something, sometimes it seems like it's really dark and dim, doesn't it? So it's hard to really yes. have full color saturation on something. So I think maybe as memories leave us and we maybe think back at our memory banks, it's almost like as they're further away, they get less saturated and as they're more vivid and profound. And like, you know, the evening I got married or something, again, under a vanilla sky, I, rem I remember that as a very saturated memory. And then I've had a couple reoccurring dreams of that experience where I kind of relive the experience. And I know one of the kind of visionary magic training dynamics is to revisit an experience or a dream from something numerous years ago 
and then see yourself subjectively, which has a very important component. And then also during that experience as you can hold that memory. Again, meditating on something that is a something that you can hold the experience in versus just an empty mind meditation, depends on how people are. Then you can go to yourself objectively in that experience and see yourself going through the scene and remembering all the smells and the specific tastes and the, you know, all the five sense details of that experience. So that's something that can have great benefit too. And and we we sometimes think of things that are seminal in our life and and those things I think for me are the most saturated things as well in terms of color and vibrancy. Yeah, I I agree. The, what so all right, let's have a moment on reoccurrence within the dream and also how if through Okay, so reoccurrence one, and then I'm looking at things that may have played out and may maybe been prophetic in a way where they played out in your day side life. And this could include things like deja vu where you remember yeah. remember it. Yeah, because it seems like in terms of deja vu, it, you could argue and you, you do hear stories. I don't have any personal stories of like I had a dream and then three days later that dream happened in real life. But we could think of much of what we see in a dream experience as as something that we could interpret as was that really an astral travel experience or a what is it called from the that the russians were doing you know studying um remote uh, viewing remote viewing experience yes exactly so is that does that mean that outside of time you know you actually were there and you actually witnessed an alternate timeline or an alternate experience and that actually was something that really happened and you were there either subjectively or objectively re-experiencing it, right? Those, those are things I can't really answer, but I have not had a personal thing where I had some profound dream that then showed up later in life that was very um, telling and, and very seminal. But I could see how those things could happen because you know we're taught that our dreams are just this random information and to just like kind of dismiss them. And I, I, I don't, I've definitely learned, if I was to ask the 10 year version ago of myself, my stupid, my more, more stupid self in my twenties when I didn't know anything about anything, I probably would have said that. But now I've I've come to realize the importance of our dreams and how I don't think that necessarily from a you know true will standpoint that our dreams are concretizing something that absolutely is is if you have a bad dream it means you're going to have a bad year or there's going to be a bad week ahead or something like that. But I do find that that I see the importance in dreams and I see that that you can really cherish some of them as some of your most, most cherished memories as well, because maybe it was you experiencing that for real in some alternate place. In, in one way, they're almost like a tarot card, a tarot pull for yourself because of the symbolism and whatnot. It doesn't really mean what it's presenting. It's more metaphor. Mm-hmm. That you have to read mm-hmm. from it. It doesn't mean you're going to have a shitty year or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's absolutely. And so much of how tarot is interpreted as well, it's kind of the same dynamic, right? It's like most of the things that you think they originally mean don't mean that at all. And there's a much deeper reason for them. And a lot of the times when you see that you've pulled the death card, it doesn't mean somebody's going to die. It just means that something stupid in your life is going to go away. The right. stupid thing is going to die. And you are conscious enough to see that you are having a, a, a cyclical kind of reboot on something. So it's almost a good thing. It's a lesson. Right? Yeah, it's a lesson. And mm-hmm. so if you have some bonkers dream about a alligator chasing you naked through the school hallways or something it doesn't mean that you have some you know huge self-confidence thing about your body it just may be saying that there's something there's a bigger picture perspective on something about your something that you're a little bit insensitive to or self-conscious about right yeah 
Yeah, super cool. But do you, I mean, do you guys always find that you, through guests that you have on this program, talking so much about dream life that it really helps? It's almost like an astrological session with somebody, right? Where you can sometimes really pull out personality traits on people's dream life, especially if they've had a very vivid dream life or have been fully honest about some of the experiences that they've had through dreams or reoccurring themes. You can tell a lot about somebody, for sure. I don't think we get a, a wide enough data set from people to make that determination. However, there are instances where people tell us stuff and I'll know right away what it meant. <laughs> like right. It just comes to me like, boom. <laughs> and Anish has the same thing, but like, um, for instance, Josh Cushion, Cushion was on a few weeks ago and he wrote, he's been writing books about fairies, and fairy lore. Mm-hmm. And he had this really strange dream where this fairy queen, for lack of a better term, like kind of acknowledged him in the dream and he didn't know how to take it. And it just seemed to me like it was a thank you. Mm-hmm. Yep. To other people too. It was a remarkable dream to him. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there yeah. are instances like that where we have a standout moment in, yeah. in the. Yeah. And I wonder if people have had reoccurring dreams over and over again, that is almost like showing them that they need to do something in their life to level up in Donkey Kong to get to the next stage. And until they do, it's like, you have to face your obstacles and you know, what is in front of you, you, you have to kind of consciously and honorably interact with to kind of then move beyond it's kind of like the dynamic of if you are into if you're get if if you're into an dating idiot people or something and you keep a cycle up of dating idiot people until you consciously fix that thing in your life that's going to then kind of break that unconscious pattern if you will have reoccurring dreams that kind of show you that thing until that point in time that's not something that i personally have had have experienced but i'm sure that's something that somebody might have a reoccurring dream of something in their life until they consciously you know, it's trying to be made, it's unconscious currently in their life, and it's trying to, the dream's trying to show you how to be conscious of that and then fix that in your waking life. And you might have reoccurring, the exact reoccurring dream over and over again until that is solved. I can't recall who it was. One of our guests, um, who's more magically inclined also, had a reoccurring dream that led up to, was it a, the birth of his child or the death of his mom, it led up to a very significant event in his life. Mm-hmm. And when he crossed that um, threshold of that event, that dream stopped. It was all about that event and it changed the trage- trajectory. You know, wow. it was such a life changing thing. I, th- I think it was the, um, who was that, Jerry? And the child didn't live long. Mm. Oh, John Briston. Uh, maybe yeah, maybe it was John. I can't recall. There's so many. It's it so was his kid. Story. Was it the person, the guest's child that didn't live? Yeah, I, I think it was John. He's the only one I remember that had that in his life. Yeah, it, and so that was an interesting. It was like this is going to reoccur. Like somehow he already his un, whatever whatever we are beyond this knew that this significant event was happening, and he also um, in in my recall of this which is so funny because memory, you know, right. Um, was how, how it, it awakened him in a different way. So the, the death was a blessing and a, a terrible thing at the same time, right. But how it, how it changed his um, idea of things, of, of the reality around us. Yeah. And death is such a interesting perspective because as you become more developed, you certainly have different perspectives on death and, and see it not so much as a, hard ending, but more of a rebooting. I mean, the saddest part of death, especially the death of a young person, is that you don't get to spend the time with them. But 
your, your time with mm -hmm. that person has wrapped up, right? So that's a very sad thing, especially if you wish you'd had a lot more time with them. But from a larger perspective, I, I know somebody that has had uh, several kids and they positively say that they have known their kids before and their kids have been, it's been flipped where their kids have essentially raised them in the past. Mm -hmm. Again, maybe thousands of years ago. So mm -hmm. again, it's sad if we have this cyclical kind of chapters in our life and maybe people that come into our life, we have in different configurations. It's like the deck of cards is shuffled in a different, different yes. cycle. Yes. And it's sad if in this particular cycle, you, the time was taken away. So that's a yeah. sad part. But knowing that from an empowering and a glass half full perspective that you might see them again is a, is a really nice way to look at it. Well, let's let's ruminate on this for a bit so give us give us your ideas from your um sphere <laughs> <laughs> about about the process of death and dying and um it, what is that and how how does it play into this experience we're having altogether that is that we're calling waking life or the day side experience yeah i think somebody Again, I don't have all the answers to this, especially when somebody dies really tragically young, but when somebody chooses to wrap it up, and of course, it's such a wonderful thing if somebody does pass in their sleep, isn't it? It's something that we all kind of wish that we will one day go with in, a, in our sleep with our loving family around us. That's kind of like the ideal way a lot of people think to go, either that or they just want to go out with a blaze of glory somehow, you know, climbing the mountaintop or something more heroic and adventurous. But in terms of that, I think that there's a dynamic with just knowing that death is not so much a, a exit, but more of a reboot. And that I think sometimes when people don't live a, a conscious life, I mean, anybody that's kind of trying and walking the path a little bit gets my vote, even if there are early steps in it. It's like, as Gurdjieff said, it's hard to see progress on a planet of sleeping humans. But when people are for every you know thousand people that don't leave Plato's cave, if one person has left Plato's cave and is actually trying to be excellent and find some magic and some enchantment and and be all that they can be and, and really work on their themselves and their own growth and, and see outward manifestations in their own creativity, I think that a lot of the times those people tend to sometimes sadly leave us early because they because they've kind of done everything that they need to do and they've created a body of work that's kind of like well kind of I'm 45 or I'm 50 and I've said everything I need to say and I've made everything I need to make and I'm, I think I'm ready to wrap it up, right? And then I started a podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. we're just getting started. Right, exactly. So I do feel that if somebody is just shut down to any sort of openness on, again, their truthful life, and you can, sometimes I just switch out spiritual for truthful, you know, because sometimes spiritual can have other connotations and it's, it's, it, it leads a little bit of a setup sometimes, but I really honestly, I've come to realize that our inner lives, our, our spiritual lives, once we kind of pursue what is true to us, as long as we're kind of standing in honor and not incurring inner, like injury or loss on others and being respectful and fulfilling our contracts and, and honoring people that are reliant on us and, and being a good you know, loved one to those that love us, then I think that you get a lot of time with those people because you you put in effort and you get reward by that. So we could talk for another 10 hours about all the occulted stuff with health and how long human beings are really supposed to be here. I recently read some interesting works by somebody that's, his, his works are very hard to find, but it's this gentleman named Hilton Hotema. And he did a lot of work on 
or he wrote a lot about occult things with health and nutrition and how most human beings can live easily well over 100 years, for example, <clears throat> and how a, a side effect of, of modernity is to make people think that they're that you know dying at 65 or 70 is a standard lifetime. So that type of stuff where, where I think we're given a lot more time if we do things consciously sometimes. So it's tricky because sometimes you see people that seem like they're excellent and they're putting out good work, but then their lives are totally a mess and they pass away early. And I could think of some names that said some profound things and did some beautiful things. One person specifically that we referenced, for example, like Alan Watts, who said some beautiful things, but had certain problems in his life and, you know, arguably died of alcoholism, something like that, where... Yes, good example. You know, you have things that you're... There's a difference between your deeds and conduct and what you're just saying on a stage or saying in a recorded medium. It's all about what you do, not so much what you say. And like I said, like it says in the Tao Te Ching, you know, those who speak don't know and those who know don't speak. So to some extent, when we have these conversations, you know, if we were all super Zen masters, we'd just be not even needing to share the information. I think at times you get to the point where you've said everything that you need to say. But regardless of, of what you've put out there, it's, I'm talking more about how you truly have really lived your life because if, you have, if you've honored all of your contracts in life and have had profound influence on other people, even if it's a small group of people, it doesn't need to be some massive fucking stupid J-Lo Instagram level of people that are perceiving to care about you. It's, that's even that's if it's witchcraft, a, <laughs> even if it's like what I call a vertical network versus a horizontal network, it's like, even if, you know, you've had excellent influence on a few other people, but your relationship with those people has been very deep and profound. And again, maybe you find that you, you're speaking to a smaller group of more sophisticated and enlightened people versus just that that's what you've actually done in your life to affect them versus what you've just said. So sometimes I think that people that have messed up lives but still say profound things tend to go early. So it's more about what you do in your life than what you say. Is there, so I wanna um, look at time here for a minute and, oh, Kronos. Um, <laughs> and since we're talking about death and also um, the illusion of time and the illusion of age and all of that, which is very, you know, this cube we're in, is very tied to the TikTok, the TikTok, the mm -hmm. TikTok. And um, every day I encounter, although I, I do not really, in, I'm not really around a lot of people, but when every day I, I encounter by reading or looking online and those kinds of things, people constantly feeding into this meme of what is old or how long they're going to live or things that have these hard, hard edges, these hard squares that are like this, that are self-determined. So they're like, by this time I'm doing this, by this, by this, by this, by the TikTok. How much of a trap is, I mean, to me, it's a trap. I never even know what bloody day it is. I had to find, I had to, I have to look on a calendar so the calendar can tell me that it is, um, I have to look the 19th. I know it's Wednesday and I'm having a show here. Um, yeah. How much of a trap do you think all this is? I mean, in the end, I feel like we could be immortals if we don't buy into this crap. It's very wise of you to say that niche. I, I, I could tell that whatever you've done to make your life so that you don't have to live robotic routine is huge. Because if you, if you ask the ancients, some of them would say that they don't even track, what is it? They tracked their, their lunar days based on the astrological calendar, but they didn't even know how old they were. 
It's like right. they cared about the, the cycles of when to plant and when to harvest and things like that, and the moon and the lunar and solar cycles, and then also some of the larger, you know, big time cycles. But they didn't even give a shit about like their actual age because it wasn't relevant. You know, it didn't matter. It wasn't that's like that's exactly were... my perspective. It does not matter. <laughs> yeah, and, and as we know, like our calendar has been so co-opted by Rome and you know shut down in terms of the what empire has done to put us into these cycles that, that have gotten away from the natural, you know, astrological and lunar solar cycles that human beings are supposed to be in, and has turned it into this thing that is very much a you know, kind of a, a patriarchal uh, machine-like dynamic, right? And it's funny because I actually lived off the grid for about eight months. And we had power and stuff, but we, by living off the grid, you certainly get aligned with the lunar solar cycles because you basically, it's really dark out and it's been dark for three hours and you don't have a lot of artificial light to keep you up that late. So you end up being much more in tune with the day cycle. Yeah, it's and, wonderful. Um, it is wonderful. Yeah, and it's nice too in terms of time when... You know, we can have a conversation like this that's hopefully more timeless. I mean, I would I would hope that somebody could turn on this conversation in 50 years and it's not very specific to the latest thing, the latest, you know, triviality of the moment, right? Because hopefully you're having a more philosophical conversation. And I, I, I have learned to try and create works that will hopefully transcend a little bit more time, like not do so much of this kind of tawdry, shallow social networking where you're blasting out only a meme that is just relevant to that whatever is going on in the you know rubbish parapolitics of the day, but more something that's a little bit of a long form thing that can be a bit more timeless. So yes. whether or not it's something that's based on life or some, again, I, I look at everything. It's like, how do, how does this affect your life? How is this relevant? And how does it really, how can it be something that helps your own benefit at any, whatever level of development that you're at and helps you. That's why I do find that something like writing an essay is a lot better than, blasting out something on a, a meme on an Instagram page or something, which most people, as, as most, you know, a lot of respect to most people, but again, for the thousand people that don't want to leave Plato's cave, maybe the muggles out there from Harry Potter, there's one Jedi that wants to leave Plato's cave. And that's usually you see in the Jedi's work, you see because of the internal development, again, the inside is the cause, the outside's the effect. You see outward manifestations that are kind of seminal works. And then you see something like, you know, somebody like Carl Jung, who then has entire scholarly people follow his body of work because, or somebody like Tolkien, you know, Tolkien scholars or Union scholars, because these people made such seminal works that's so timeless because they were the ultimate, he created these ultimate bodies of work that weren't these short form, quick, discursive internet meme things or social networking little blasts that make you go from scroll to scroll in a very destroy your spiritual growth or, or destroy your, they're so discursive that they destroy your concentration. So it's hard to focus on something. So that's why it's nice to do longer form things. And I don't mean you, like you need to be a lexicographer and be writing dictionaries. It means like you're creating things like a podcast like this. We have a nice longer form conversation where you can really dive deeper. And that, be, that makes it more timeless. Yeah. yeah. I definitely prefer these waters. I'm terrible at chit chat. This is why I'm always like, all right, let's get started. <laughs> yeah, that's very healthy. You know, I know what you mean because chit chat is fake chat, right? It's just like, the, so it's, bad at it. it's the routine. It's kind of like somebody, it's kind of analogous to when you go into on the rare occasion that, you know, we might find ourselves in some shopping center or something and you walk into a <laughs> store and there's the, 
the corporate drone, again, this doesn't mean that somebody can't be doing excellent things too. And we all need to do what right, we need to do to live robotically. Being there, they have to do this greeting. They have to do this this bullshit yeah. greeting, right? And yeah. they have to give you this robotic bullshit greeting. The same with like, you know, I feel bad for people that have to do telemarketing, but everybody can change things in their life so they don't have to be a, a corporate yes. robot. But yes. they do this like, huh, how are you doing today? And it's very fake. It's just, it's it's absolute baby pole shallow. And when you, a lot of people that are, have reached a, you're probably niche, you've gotten too conscious for small talk is essentially what I'm saying, right? Like you, <laughs> you want to, you want to dive deeper into a real understanding and real more philosophic discussion on, on things that are real. And generally that takes time to do. It's just like how it takes time to read a dense text or it takes time to have an excellent conversation where you really truly get to know somebody. You know, you're sitting around a campfire conversation, having a two hour conversation, like we would be if we were all physically together rather than just these little short form sound bites. And as we know, we yeah. live in a very loud cacophonous soundbite culture. Yeah. It's, um, it, it, it's, it's a labyrinth. It really is a labyrinth. This is why I only go shopping for my, the goods I need that I don't, you know, this year wasn't a grow year for me. The garden was terrible. The weather was terrible, but you know, every six weeks at the least to get into the market because it's such a terrible experience. <laughs> I cannot believe it's like really dealing with zombies and this is, Watch. I'm not putting people down. I'm just saying whatever's going on in the environment um, in, especially in markets with the, the weirdness of whatever hurts they're playing on the radio. And if they're spraying volume in the air, I don't know <laughs> what lights. it is that people seem to be the most walking dead like in markets. It's like they'll bump you, they knock you, they don't acknowledge you, they don't look up. It's no, you know, I'm sorry for you. You're reaching for something and someone grabs it. It's all the jokes you see in films, it's right? Like, it's like the store is in and of itself an AI that manifested and it manifested those customers just to fill space. We're <laughs> yeah, not really there. Totally. <laughs> yeah, big cities full of lonely people. Yep. Oh, and alone and together, that, right? Alone yeah. together. And that's because it's, you know, you guys have these great conversations on this podcast and think of how enriching and fulfilling that is to you and how much that benefits you. Right. And so you've created a medium and this is why we create podcasts like this. So you've created a medium where you can bypass that kind of bullshit filter of, you yes. know, that and, and get to this kind of mesh network where you can find other nodes on the network that have activated more and are talking about real shit. <laughs> right. So, and, and that, that requires a, a format like this. And that's one of the great things about, podcasts is that you can really get into a great conversation with somebody where you dive deeper and learn more about them. And you're not going to get that in the, in New York city, usually, even though right. it, you, you know, can get to know that naked cowboy pretty good. <laughs> I think that's why I sometimes say that I think the best social mm -hmm. network is meetup.com because it gets people together in yeah. rooms, hopefully talking about real things. I've met some of my favorite people through meetup. Like my only real friend here in this area is through meetup. <laughs> It's yeah, like, I'm super selective though. So I have a couple more questions um, for you. And so, and again, bring me, bring it from your sphere, of course. But do you think that, does reality form as you experience it? Oh my gosh, it's a 10,000 hour conversation. I know, um. I know, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Does reality well, just, form as you experience it? Just look it. what NASA did to space, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's... I do feel that 
again, I try not to say I, I believe that's a, I, I've learned not to believe in anything anymore. Amen. Um, again, feeling, I do, I think that reality is definitely a setup and I'm not saying that it's, sometimes I say it's like Truman Show meets Groundhog Day where we are in some sort of construct and I don't think it's a, a glass half full dynamic like a prison planet. But I do think it's like a growth lab where souls transit in to experience polarity in order to grow and talk about like the physical spatial model of that question mark, talk about the, you know, suppression systems in place around that and speculate on that a, a huge amount. And in terms of Groundhog Day, I think it's repeating itself until you, it's like the maze that you reference, niche, where it's like a, a growth maze until you can grow out of it. Right. So that's kind of a dynamic on it. And then in terms of, is it created as you experience it? Mystery is more the telling thing than history, right? Like mystery is my story and history is his story. Yes. So I don't, I don't buy anything in terms of history. I've heard, one thing I've heard recently is that anything pre, pre-World War II is completely rewritten. Or is it the other way around? Is it anything, it's no. like anything pre-World War II is completely false. And that our perspectives on history is completely not at all anything to do with what we think it is. I would even go back to 1850. <laughs> so your life is a very, your life is there as a setup for you to learn things that you have to kind of level up in Donkey Kong through your experiences to find, like everything is initiatory, right? And everything is like a, a series of self-initiations for you to kind of find what you might call your true will. Like, like, and as, as we could like, align with your occult. Dharma, how about that? Yeah. Or Dharma or what you might mm -hmm. call you like your raison d'etre, mm -hmm. right. Which is your reason for being. And I, I recently wrote an essay about this that I'm going to put out on the podcast, but there's this Japanese term called Ikigare, I think, which talks about, and this is probably the, the long winded roundabout way to answer your question, Nish, but Ikigare is a, is a phrase that basically encapsulates like what you are interested in and how you want to spend your time, and then also how you can make money. And a lot of people that are conscious struggle with that, right? Like, how can I do what I want to do with my time and also make it sustainable, right? So in terms of how we actually live our lives and, and what reality really is, I think it's all uh, a reason for us. I think it's all there for us to find our true will. And in terms of like, is it happening? I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount the fact that it's what is really going on is so bonkers that it's all about each one of us. It's like a, a growth lab, a Truman show for us to engage our true will to go on that path. Right. That, that was, that was good. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank I mean, you. For a very, uh, you know, that's a very big question. And so I, I like the way you, you brought that to us in a condensed way. Sure. And we could, we could continue to fractal that out and unpack it for a long time, but. It is a very dense question. It's funny when you ask these questions, it's like you, there's a, a question I was thinking I should start asking guests sometimes is what is our mind? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is sort of, that question is sort of one of the ones we used to ask because like, really, as far as consciousness goes, you know, what, what's yeah. your opinion of local, non, is it local or non-local? Where is it? Where yeah. is consciousness? I totally buy that we are essentially subjective consciousnesses in, that are 
essentially like fractal tree branches of a larger objective consciousness, right? So our minds are essentially an interface with divine mind because like the, the all is like, the, the all is essentially a mental construct, right? So I think that we are in a larger divine dream from a larger being, right? Mm -hmm. And if you want to call that the source of all things or the dream source. And so I think that part of that being's learning and experiencing itself is to kind of create all these separate little puzzle pieces on or chess pieces on the chessboard that are here to experience polarity, you know, sun, moon, night, day, Republican and Democrat, you know, war and peace. And so we, we transit here for maybe a hundred years to experience some polarity and then kind of report back to itself what ourselves have experienced. And if we can access that higher self, you know, in whatever way is a little, little form, it's like maybe yourself and my, maybe your higher self and my higher self will find are a very similar thing. And that's why somewhat, sometimes you hear the term, like, we are all one from a higher, highest level. There's a, um, so I alluded to this earlier, and um, I th this will be my last before questions or whatever Jerry may have also. Um, sure. Yeah. But in this, there's this idea of, so back to death, everything's kind of death, right? Um, which is life. There's this idea that this, that we are dead, even though we're having. So I don't want, I don't want to get those realists and rationalists engaged here with the craziness. Yes, you can cut yourself and bleed. You can kill, you know, all this. So just that aside, follow me. Um, Cause I can hear, I can hear certain people saying, well, we're alive. We're alive. There's a, an idea in some of the deep Gnostic work that we're that we're here in this nowness right now is actually kind of the dead plane where where the death on this side is actually birth and um and so without i think throwing more into that pot do you, what do you think about that idea that kind of inverseness that's going on the zero point right death and birth it's important to realize that nothing comes from here. Everything comes from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. and, and especially from like, you, as we talk about creativity, like the muse or getting data. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I, it does resonate with me in what you said that this plane, this kind of material plane is a lower density plane from higher places. Mm -hmm. So again, to that we are a derivative of something else. So that's why that does resonate in that regard. And that, I wouldn't call this necessarily a, a, a death zone, but I would call it a very difficult place. And if you can do earth, you can do anything, right? Yes. So we kind of, <laughs> we kind of, <laughs> we kind of um, experience this and it's hard, right? People's lives are hard. I mean, life is not easy. It's, it's even if you open up to things and have a, a more, what you might say, you might, you might want to move towards a more mystical life or a more, a more magical life. You know, you still have our struggles and we all have our bags of shit. And so Absolutely. I think that we come from essentially this sounds maybe a little bit John Lennon, but we do come from pure love. And that as you go down these various densities of experience, you kind of will one day get back to that place, but you're here to, it, it's an honor to be here. And it's also, it, it lets you see that as you come from this pure place of bliss that we will all return to one day, mm -hmm. that having this experience of some of it is very dark, dark polarity, bright polarity. We have some very hard experiences and difficult experiences with wonderful experiences here too, right? So 
I would say that you get a mix of these things. And I always end up almost in every single conversation end up talking about the balance of these things, right? About how we balance our lives and balance like love and hate and light and dark and how there's the, the, the power in things comes from finding that center point in so many things. And so I wouldn't call this just like a, a, a dark, lowly, horrible place. And I think so much of the system and suppression systems, of course, make us think that we're in much more of a doomy place than we really are. Yes. So when you look at things Not from this kind of all the YouTube okay. videos. <laughs> yes. If it, if it bleeds, it leads. And we see that from the, the unreality signal of like, you know, non-journalistic infotainment tawdry garbage. Right. And so right. we see that sometimes from alternate sources that are just as rubbish as Fox news or CSNBC. Right. It doesn't matter what side of a political spectrum you're on. If it bleeds, it leads. And so it, it, it's really powerful to shut off rubbish externalized sources that come from authority figures that don't have your interests at heart that just want to see you as a kind of advertising label that want to send you this unreality signal and just market excellent like garbage stuff to you when you kind of turn off the unreality signal and see that so much of what is enriching and fulfilling comes from sources that are yummy to you like maybe some of those great books that we spoke about or some of these great people that we've referenced you know those those people had figured out a little bit of this sense of what is occult is usually hidden and there's a dark side to that, a very dark side to that. And there's an amazing, wonderful power in that too. Yes. Yeah. And then finding that so much of what is the con is to shut down what's outside of us, or I'm sorry, shut down what's inside of us and get us to outsource things to other things, to externalize sources, right? So you need to have some faith in this outside deity or you need to believe that our politicians are going to help us or you need to buy that this latest you know junky thing that's just puts you on puppet strings and makes you much more like controllable and you become much more sovereign and powerful when you realize that you have this amazing ability within you to guide your own will and find your own path and um you know at the same time it's a think globally act locally thing where be respectful of your brothers and sisters and so much of everything that's big is a suppression system and so much of what you can do locally in terms of small things is beautiful. Right. I think it's yeah. important to know that or for people to realize that the suppression system is really just a giant imagery generator for you. It's generating your reality. Yeah. And because you're not generating, you're not creating your own reality. Someone else is doing it. That's a so true. way I look at it. So true. And people that sometimes don't understand what that means exactly. I mean, it's just like if you, if you turn off, signal to noise and turn off rubbish and if you like we talked about the eucharist for me i found that it's happened to happens to be a two component thing but maybe it's a seven component thing you know maybe it's drinking excellent water and eating or drinking really clean water and eating organic foods and and turning off all garbage sources of of news i mean I, again i give a lot of respect to the kind of independent journalist that might have his own blog and is doing some shred yes. of real journalism. So you yeah. find these little, again, you find these bottom-up sources that have shreds of truth in them. But as like Sturgeon's Law says, 90% of everything is crap. You can turn off that 90% of crap and then find 10% of what is excellent. Then that reality that you're creating is very much going to then outwardly be manifesting. And I do feel that some of that new thought material that says that thoughts are causative has very profound importance to it where when you engage your, when you go from like mind, heart, and will and actually do things in your life that turn off bad systems, turn off bad signals and create good systems locally within yourself, then, you know, you live a much more enriching and, and, and powerful life. 
So that's what I found anyway. That was a very, again, long-winded uh, way to answer your question. That was <laughs> excellent. Thank you for that. And, no complaints. And with that, really, I've got nothing left on my page. That was beautiful. I, I had written down one thing. Yeah, sure. Oh, you had mentioned earlier, and I, would just, I was going to throw it out for a discussion topic, was, uh, the echoing of esoteric stuff in Hollywood production. Not in Hollywood, but in our media. Let's say in media, in movies, TV shows. I see a ton of it, and I don't think it's all... I'll put it this way. I know it's not all deliberately put there. There, yes, are, there it, are things that we see that are, that are given to us to offer to us, and they might not always be visual. You know, they could be encoded in some manner, but there's always a lot of shit in media that, that wasn't placed there culture. deliberately. Yeah, in pop culture. There is, and I'm not one to really, I don't dive a lot into like parapolitics or like, I understand the importance of numerology, for example. So mm -hmm. I'm not one to like do endless research on encoding this date with this specific number and this specific Super Bowl ceremony. Yeah, but you know that stuff. But I do, I do understand. I do see what you're saying, Jerry. Is that it's some of it is done consciously and some of it's done unconsciously. Right. So I understand that the Wachowskis had a certain level of development that got to them to a certain point, and then all these puzzle pieces from a higher place kind of locked in to make the matrix all that it was, right? They maybe had very base, simple understandings of Gnosticism, but they didn't understand full depths of things. So things just happened to be an imprint of the author combined with a larger, a larger metaphysical thing happening that the species needed at that time that gave them that information through a piece of artwork like a seminal film, something like that, is, right? Is this something that they told you? No. Okay. okay. <laughs> I know you yeah, worked I on their movies. I thought maybe they. Were... No. I, I, I met the Wachowskis once when they were um, in hy hybridization. <laughs> I know? met them in Chicago way before that. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> yeah, but um, you know, and I, I give credit. I don't want to always just say that everything from a, a top-down thing is garbage and that there's no good people working within those systems. I mean, every once in a while you get something that is cool, so that deserves credit. But again, it's it's going to be ten percent. And I, I, I criticize things from, I have a thing on my website that, that criticizes, you know, psychology and life coaches and therapists, and it, it, it's very critical of them. And I'm not necessarily criticizing all of them. I'm just criticizing 90%. <laughs> all right. I had one question. It's probably late for you guys. Nah. Yeah, you're, you're Nighthawks, I can tell. But. Not for totally. me. I'm on the West Coast with you out here. Oh, you are. That's right. Oh, yeah. you're talking that's about right. the sun being a soul stargate. I remember in your interview on THC, I think that's something either you or Neil said something about that. Uh, yeah, I love that concept. I've heard that a lot. That's very Gnostic. But, it is. Um, you know, it the, is. the ET enlightened people uh, believe that it's also a stargate in terms of crafts a crafts can come through there. like it's a white hole that every black hole is connected to a white hole which is our sun and you could go out and through it so i mean it's kind of carried over to the physical it, through these people in addition to the, the or the spiritual whatever you want to call it you really have to have a spiritualized mind to even really i think start to understand what the real spatial model is yeah Right. So it's, it's really great. It's really like in terms of divine opposites, like the sun and the moon, I, I, I absolutely, I mean, again, like the sun, Eric Dollard has said a lot of profound things about the sun. I, I, I think Dollard, the electric the universe is onto some things about the sun. 
my colleague Neil Kramer says that he doesn't even think that there's heat there. I don't either. And that, you know, there's, again, what's really going on, I think, is so forces you to get so outside what Nietzsche said, the, the, the cube that we're in, right? And so it, it, it's, it's so bonkers, I think, what is really the real deal of what we're in, that it's, it, it's, you have to have that kind of, you have to get to a certain development, especially in terms of understanding what you are, to then understand what's out there, right? And so the sun, I think, is, a, is something that we know ancient cultures have had such profound connection with and such deep worship to. Don't and I think that, yeah, and I think that they obviously so much of ex, what, what religion does is give you kind of these externalized half-truths and corporealized things like the sun. Obviously, you know, Jesus is the S-U-N of God, not the S-O-N of God. So, right. so much of what we see in terms of Astro theology and shamanism; those two things are so correlated. And and I always highly recommend if anybody has a any sort of ceremonial experience or does any sort of ritual to try and do it out in nature. Because again, the Eucharist that we talk about, another component of it with eating healthy foods and listening to proper frequencies and having some sort of plant that you have a relationship with or some sort of ceremony that you have a relationship with is the relationship of those. The, the feminine moon and the masculine sun. And if you could do that in nature, those things will be teachers during that experience. I, yeah. I just want to do a little shout out to the electric universe. I think they're onto something too. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, again, Tesla, it's always nice to look at correlations that you see from people's material. So if Tesla is saying, you know, to understand the universe, you must look at frequency and vibration. And then William Walker Atkinson is saying that in the Kybalion that, you know, he's telling you that one of the main principles of natural law is vibratory. And that when I, to, to reference something else, like when I ate LSD, it was like everything's shimmering and vibrating. And I think that it's showing you, it's taking off to go back to that automatist metaphor where you usually have these blinders on that don't show you reality how it really is. You don't see the vibratory nature of everything just visually right in front of you. And when you have some experience that then shows you that, 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 that there's data transmission in light and that light is constantly trying to come into you and that gnosis is trying to access you, and you just have to not only structure your life, but then become a vessel that you can receive that information from these you know, teachers, that, that is very profound, very profound. And our relationship with nature is so, so huge. So oh, get yeah. out into nature. It's so important. And it does seem like the trajectory right now is pushing everyone away from nature. Like it's just overwhelming how, um, how detached so much of the um, public seems to be when I go out into the world. It, it seems like there's that, that so much could be resolved by getting at least fostering some sort of relationship with nature go out into the wood where there is nothing turn your phone off and just <laughs> go on a hike right did, did you listen to the yeah. interview with carl Ab abrams abrahamson on, i didn't uh, i, I think it was on sure, a culture or thc i don't recall however he said the exact same thing if you want to if you want to initiate or wake up go spend a night alone in the woods yeah, and again, to reference something that we talked about earlier, you know, we're taught that the woods at night are so scary and, you know, that we're, that's one thing that I really don't appreciate from horror movies. And even though, again, I'll watch a trashy horror movie here and there is that. Oh, me too. I love them. <laughs> we're so, we're so like, you know, scared of, of, of the, 
of the night, right? Like the night is such a such an amazing thing, and 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 people are so afraid to go out and into into do things, and that obviously so much of of what you could say is a false dynamic today is technology, where people want to upload to a a VR space and experience some experience, you know, playing Battlefield rather than going out and having an amazing, you know, that that's just the 99 cent store version of what you'll get out in the woods in the Pacific Northwest in terms of enchantment. And for our for our feature documentary, you know, Transmutation, we went to some of these old growth forests that were just so like, just to be there felt so amazing. And there's this there's this Japanese term called Shinrin Yuku, which is forest bathing, right? So just getting out into the forest, it's yes. just like you get again the the cosmic car wash, you get it in, in 3D material reality too, just by being around those old old growth trees that are hundreds of years old. They release it's, their essences at like three to six feet. That's human height. Mm, the oils mm. and everything are released in that. that. Huh. Wow. Yeah, wow. And that's the thing is that I hope that I mean, we could have another, this could unpack into a much larger conversation, but in terms of like environmental <laughs> destruction, it, you know, it does, it does pain me to know that, that there is such, you know, damaging environmental destruction going on as, as much of the species is in, you know, coming out of very low resonant consciousness. And I think people, knowledge of the solution is half the problem, knowledge of the problem is half the solution. So as, as, you know, compared to the 50s white picket fence version of what people cared about the environment versus now. Yeah, and of course, climate yes. change is a whole separate story. But obviously, a, a species that creates plastic and burns fossil fuels is still in the sandbox of of consciousness. But yeah, you know, and nature, getting out into nature, and our our relationship with nature is so huge. And uh, I, it, it's really an honor if, as young people, yes, to stop to take off the VR headset. You can put that on an occasion because I admit it's totally fun. But have it a balance. Fun. Have a balance between the VR headset and getting out into those old growth forests or. Even if you live in the desert, the desert is full of magic. And the, right, all nature, all nature is. And there's, the, it, there's any kind of landscape that will suit any kind of person. You know, it's just a matter of engaging in it. And the scariest thing in the dark in nature is you, your shadow, <laughs> right? We've created and been, the program around us has, has been there to, to tell us that there are these great fears out there. And mm -hmm. what is that? That is our shadow content. I, I, all of a sudden I have to engage with my own senses out in, out in whatever wild nature there is. I'm in, I'm engaging with myself. There was that movie recently. Oh my God. It blew me away. Um, everything's lost with, um, Robert Redford. I think that's what it's called. Everything's hmm. lost hmm. or, um, something like that. Unbelievable, esoteric deeply philosophical film about exactly this. And um, hmm. it's just profound. I cannot tell you how profound it is. And um, all, all is lost. All is lost. All is Thank lost. you, Jerry. I knew Jerry was going to be on that. So is that I, the boat one? Yes. 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 Yeah. And it's him dealing with himself in the end. And I mean, what about that last scene? That is so provocative. It's so provocative of life and death and liminality and, and projection and, and, what we want, where we're going, what's happening. There's so much just in that last scene. There can be huge excellence from like even, a, you know, lower budget Hollywood productions that are kind of these human interest piece movies, you know, like yes. the ones that are a single guy stranded on an island or something that's the perseverance through man versus nature stories, right? Can yes. Have some, even a lot of times you watch them and it's like a horror movie where they do something stupid and you're like, they would never do that. But 
at the same time, those kind of Lone Ranger movies can really be profound heroes' journeys. And, you know, you guys have done a, a nice kind of hinting with this podcast where, you know, we talk about night and night is decay, right? So there is this decaying dynamic at night where, like Gurdjieff said, I mean, there's a, there's an, there's a nature component to that where like most decay does happen under the moon, but then there's an esoteric component of that, like Gurdjieff had referenced where yes. the thoughts of men are food for the moon, right? Yes. So a lot of the times at <laughs> night, like we decay old things about us. And I sometimes think about how they, there's some statistic like scientifically about how our body every seven years, like completely all the cells in our body are totally new every seven years. And it's like, yes. is all that stuff going to the moon to decay at night during sleep? I love I love that ponder. It's so juicy. <laughs> and I guess that's a good place for um, questions. I got no questions. I also want to admit, and all is lost too, there's no dialogue, and it's only Robert Redford in the ocean. Yeah, brilliant. brilliant. It's so brilliant. I put the trailer into the chat and also in the show notes. So, so there are no questions? Wow. There was one, but... It was lost. All is lost. You know, I know what it is, but I don't want to ask it because I want to ask it. I wanted to ask another question, which I already forgot about. No, it's okay. Yeah. Oh, well, the moon cycle is alchemical as well because you've got the blackening at night. Oh, yeah. The white. Yes. Well, and, and we see in, you know, alchemical esoteric imagery is very profound with the sun and the moon, isn't it? Because it's showing us things that are not only from a a male perspective and a female's perspective, but you also oftentimes see these things right above the head of the male or the head of the female. And this is very much the relationship of how, you know, the as above, so below dynamic of these cosmic forces and how much they influence us, which is very much seen in our astrology and how our sun and our moon are very predominant in our astrological charts. Mm -hmm. And then also from an alchemical perspective, I mean, alchemy is so fascinating. Another 25-hour conversation. Oh, but, yeah. Oh, yeah. But um, you can really, you can, uh, sometimes you'll hear other sources that don't necessarily just buy the dynamic that the sun is masculine and the moon is feminine. Sometimes there's very valid way, there's very valid places that I've read that have kind of advocated the opposite. But if you look at it in a lot of alchemical works, you do see the moon is represented as the element above the female and the sun below the male. But a lot of the times in those works, you oftentimes have to reference stuff on a grid in the image to see like what is lining up with what, which also has a significance. But I, oh, I'm very, very fond of alchemical etchings and artwork, and that those things will end up showing you many more profound truths about what we are and what we're in. These are kind of two seminal questions to ask yourself. is like, what am, what am I and what am I in, right? And sometimes alchemical works can help show you that in a very encoded way, just like our dreams. And like symbolism and dreams, very similar. And, yes. and Philip K. Dick told us in Valis, it's the Black Iron Prison. <laughs> Yeah, and if you it, and it's nice to look at the black iron prison as again knowledge of the problem is half the solution. So not to just see it from a glass half empty we're fucked standpoint, but oh, look at it as like no. look at it as like a glass half full standpoint of like sure maybe I just talked about this in a recent essay, but maybe a lot of these things are there to help you know us realize that because without trial and hardship, without seeing the decay or the dark or the shadow, we don't improve, right? So you really learn through the dark, like you really learn through your negative experiences and your fuck-ups and like you being an idiot you learn from those experiences the most don't you You don't learn from you you either win or you learn right yes right, right. and you don't yeah. always learn when you win i also right, exactly. like to think of it in the context of the prison has you know the doors are open and if you wake up you're outside you know 
if you can look at it and see what's going on around you as your reality as a stage, as a player, whatever, you pretty much stepped out of the prison. Because that's, to me, that's what it really meant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the world's a stage. Beautifully said, Jerry. <laughs> yeah, and that this goes back to what Nish was talking about, about the that this is death and whatever you said about the transition states. And another way to look at that is that this is a real-time life review. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's very, it's, I find it very empowering to know that we are powerful beings and that we have incredible access to things that know thyself, right? Know who you are and know that you can access amazing places and that those amazing places you may find are just a derivative of a larger version of you. And that, that, that is such a profound thing to know in this, in this reality, right? And, and to work towards always being your best self and living as honorably as possible. And again, fulfilling your contracts, which is important. Like this is, this is a dynamic where it's just, again, it's more enriching and fulfilling, like I've said, and it's more, it opens up the world to being a much happier world for you. Because again, it's like, what are you going to do with this life? You've got only so much time this time around. So make it count and do awesome things with it and hopefully create a, create some cool things like excellent podcasts and good conversations and great art and seminal music and, Excellent movies. Literature. Here, and here. Excellent movies. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I do like the fact that not to linger on, but the um it's not talked about enough. And the fact that the lunar cycle and the solar cycle, the lunar cycle is the cycle of decay biologically. And um and and it's it seems like a lot of um I hear a lot of I don't hear that being acknowledged enough. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm, I'm grateful that you brought that up because that's, it's a significant thing to ponder, but it's also a reality. It's when things are breaking down, uh, you know, tissues breaking down, the, the cr- creepy crawlies are eating then, the decay is happening. It's the silver light, right? Yeah. And there was that like nine inch nails video that showed a fox rotting or something. And everybody's like, oh, yes. it's so disgusting. And you got to yeah. realize that's just a natural part of nature, right? Is to have closer. some bloated decomping corpse being eaten by maggots and that's a you know we think of that as disgusting and it might not smell very good but it's part of the cycle right and what's really disgusting is a is a society that creates fucking plastic and and you know there's some advantages to plastic but we create these things that don't break down that aren't part of that decay cycle and then we have these ocean gyres full of a big problem but but they're not okay people say that it's not part of you know it doesn't decay whatever it just doesn't fit into our model of what a decay should be it doesn't fit into our lifetime of decay it's still made with organic stuff there's every chemical everything on this planet is organic it came mm, from even, here yes even radioactive stuff <laughs> even radio, yeah. right exactly so plastic yeah, no, it's true it's good. Yeah, it, it, technically organic it just doesn't it doesn't decay on our time schedule it's right. bad and chemistry it, mm-hmm. but it doesn't follow the natural cyclical season decay as i guess what we should say and so we have a lot of byproduct but it's a good point jerry that you know there are some again like everything balance 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 it doesn't right. mean that everything with plastic is terrible there's some huge advantages to plastic and some of the technology that's working on cleaning up problems with plastic is made of plastic so yeah um you George know we Carlin that, said that uh pla- you know the earth may have evolved us to make plastic for it Right, right. Yeah, and we may well, have created still, we may I'm have created radioactive waste so that we can use mycelium to clean it up. And exactly. Yeah, exactly. Out. Right. I'm still a fan of glass, though. Glass is sexy. I like getting stuff in glass. Glass is happy to the environment. It's, there's so much 
you know, it was, it was a wonderful um, thing to look back and see how much glass in my lifetime, how much glass, even like, um, like Noxema, everything was in glass. And mm. um, I don't know, there's just something to me sexy about glass where plastic lost the sexy, not to mention it's terrible on animals that it finds itself inside of like in the ocean and all that. Yeah. And it's funny. I used to work at a video store in high school and I would shrink wrap movies in this weird plastic wrap and it wasn't under very good insulation. And one day this woman came by and told me that like at hospitals, they had banned the plastic wrap on food because it caused, it caused infertility. I was standing there like breathing in these plastic. (laughs) 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 And then there, you know, it's like, Oh geez. And and there's a documentary written or made about a couple in a major city, Chicago or New York that, tried to live essentially the entire one year without any byproduct waste. And they use glass. They use glass containers, like ball glass jars, right? Which are really nicely made glass. And there's some, yeah, huge advantages to that. My, my mom is a little bit of a half like hoarder and saved all these ball jars from Mm -hmm. her mother. And they're really like high quality glass that don't have any planned obsolescence in them. Like some modern glasses that would just crack very easily. Yes. The old glass is great. So, and it's just beautiful. It's tactile. I don't know. There's something that really engages the sensate for me. And um, I like to keep glass. I I don't know. I think that's a whole other subject. You should try it. should blow it sometime. The place by me where I used to go kind of closed. I don't know where to go now. It's Mm. very fun. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to do that. I've been around. I have glass blowing friends. It it seems a little, I'm a little klutzy for that. Another amazing art form, though, you know, we all find our kind of special, it's all about the cottage industry, yes. you know, creating something yes. in the blacksmith shop, like cottage industry style. And as long as you create something that is quality product, whether or not, you know, I try and do that with documentary films or mm-hmm. some sort of, you know, essay I write or something I speak on. But like, if whatever you, whatever is your niche that is like kind of brings in your muse and does, is you doing you and is something that creates quality in that cottage industry style. You make, yes. you know, very intricate, ornate, you know, notebooks or or crafts or or something that you just play with your own, you know, single instrument. That's mad respect, and that's huge for your, you know, creativity as as to help be part of that creative process. I think that's what we're here. I think that's part of the the point of being here is that creative energy. We see it, of course, through procreation, literally, as we talked about earlier. But Mm -hmm. I do think that the act of getting creative, wherever that is for you, whatever that is for you, there's something that... there's something that unlocks this code within us and changes, you know, we could go into the science of it, but there's something very important and significant about it. And so you see like people who spent their whole lives doing corporate stuff where they they really weren't being creative. And at the end of their lives, there's this regret. What about all the deathbed regrets that, you know, books are written about? Absolutely. And if you're on your yellow brick road, generally you won't hit a midlife crisis because you realize you haven't wasted some massive chunk of your life in a under the you know tentacle arms of some gross pyramidal hierarchy hierarchy that doesn't give a shit about you ultimately and if you are blowing glass in you know a small town and that's filling your cup that's also probably helping you align your true will yes right? so when you're yes. cr- when you're when your creative outlets really fulfill you and are that really great drug it's also helping you find your path which is again custom de- designed for each of us and it's that kind of thelemic align your true willpath where 
it, it helps you realize what, what you're ultimately, what's the best way to become the best version of you through your creative output. Because again, inside cause, outside effect, and your inner life will eventually outwardly manifest creations that are beautiful and that will create some sort of art. Absolutely. We like, can dream another dream. Like attracts People. like, you know. <laughs> yep. Mm -hmm. And we can collectively dream another dream. Somehow we're collectively dreaming this paradigm. But I think that we can collectively shift it. And by little things of doing whatever that meme is, do yourself, you know, like slowly, sh little shifts, little shifts. Everyone thinks mm -hmm. big and big, scary shifts that don't seem, you can't see how the road meets up. But the little things you do by start stitching over here in your spare time, if that's what gives you joy and see where that takes you. Right. And it's not a, it's not a race either. You know, people think that they need yeah. to do. I think most people, even excellent people that I've met that are very adept people, they still have to do some sort of, you know, balancing of a few things that are a little bit robotic here and there. And then they have other things where they're able to do these creative outlets as well. And ideally, we can get to the point where we only do our creative outlet full time. And yes. then also have kind of enriching, enriching personal time as well. So that's the kind of ideal thing. However, small of a network or large of a network of people you affect, that generally doesn't matter as much. But it, what matters is what's true for you and what is, again, beneficial in terms of your craft and how you align that. So it's, it's always a struggle for everybody. Nobody's got it quite perfect. And I think we wouldn't no. be here unless we needed to figure that out. I mean, that's partially yeah. why we're here is to figure these things out so that from a larger perspective, like every single, however, 7 billion plus nodes on a network we'll all eventually probably get there as well, even though you could say time doesn't exist. How long would that take? It would take a long time. <laughs> I doubt 7 billion people. <laughs> right. <laughs> sure. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Nothing is as it seems. Correct. That is <laughs> a good note to end this show. Yeah. Show. <laughs> this has been so great, Niles. <laughs> oh, yeah. Fun. It was great chatting with you guys. Thanks for, um, thanks for the time. Likewise. Uh, is there anything you'd like to plug or talk you know, get out yeah, there. where can people find you? What's going on? Uh, you can find me at nilesheckman.com. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, I make a, there's a variety of all sorts of juicy things to dive into there. Yes, there is. And those yeah. links are all in the description along with your medium.com link and YouTube and Vimeo. And all yeah, I've been trying to do place. less and less uh, anti-social networking. So yeah. we, all have to, <laughs> we all have to play the game a little bit here in their marketing. Yeah. Ways, I but... did not put your Twitter in there. I didn't put your Facebook, see? It's funny. I, I used to I used to do some anti-social networking, and then I subsequently just zeroed all the accounts out. So I have an empty Twitter, an empty Facebook, and an empty Instagram, <laughs> so that some you know bot doesn't take over the account or something. And I, I realize that some people are decent at those things. I again, I try and long form things. That's why, like, I like Medium, for example. Mm -hmm. But I find that I'm. It's much more. It's much better to spend your time creating something that will be out there for a long time. And I don't think yes. you're going to be in the nursing home caring about your Instagram. Either. <laughs> you know, essays are hyper sigils in a way so. <laughs> hyper sigils of it. yeah they are i mean they really are but that's right. a 10-hour discussion yeah so, seriously thank absolutely. you so much niles it was wonderful talking to you and and please don't hang up and everyone yeah, else who's watching or listening thank you so much be sure to tune in next week when we have guest teresa yanaros from divine frequency i think it's her radio show that should be an interesting conversation so have a good night and be sure to give us a like thank you everyone thank you
Cheers.